Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us. This is episode 124. Uh, we are recording uh, Sunday, May 2nd, 2021 at 2 o'clock p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Uh, I am your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. We have a normal episode today, guys. It's been a little while. It feels a little weird. Uh, we are a week removed from the Oscars. Honestly, it feels like we're a month removed. I don't know why. It just feels like it was forever ago that that actually happened. But um, any any hot takes now that we're, we're a week removed? We did our live show like immediately after, but anything anything else that you've been thinking about over the last week? That I was right and you were wrong about Glenn Close, Terry, that it was obviously pre-planned, all staged, that she knew the question was coming. Doesn't change the fact that it was still awesome. That's true. <laughs> So why'd they tell her and not the other two? Because the other two had no idea. <laughs> no, they didn't. I don't know. We'll never Maybe know. They, they just won't, apparently wanted to have some fun with Glenn Close. And I, I, is Glenn Close now like the new Jack Nicholson of the Oscars? Like, she has to be there in the front row every time just because she needs to be. I think so. Seems like it. I mean, we... she was sitting at a table with Daniel Kaluuya. <laughs> Can we just have Regina King as the host from now on? I mean, she's now there. Oh, she's by the way, she's the MVP of every. Did you guys watch the Guillermo's red carpet interviews? She's all. She's now a, a staple of Guillermo's red carpet interviews, and she should have just hosted the whole thing. That's that's a, the hot take I forgot to mention last week. I mean, she did a good job starting the show off. Why didn't Lorel just do it? <laughs> he, he pretty I much mean, he he was, the red carpet. He could have yeah. just kept it going. I like the idea of him being the correspondent, you know, like talking to the people in the audience, doing the gags and the gimmicks. So does that mean Questlove was the host? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. All right. Well, I'm kind of glad that we get to put the, that award season behind us and finally look ahead and focus on 2021. So we're going to be doing a category today that's looking back at Oscars in past again, but that's okay. Uh, you know what we do every week. It's what we do all the time. It really is. That's all. That's all we really care about here. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review all over the place. We are on Apple Podcasts. We're on Stitcher. We're on Spotify. We're on Pandora. We're on YouTube. Make sure you catch us there. Uh, Zach. What are you drinking? Uh, I'm having some Agua Fria because uh, uh, I have to recover from, uh, you know, doing the Oscars ap after show, after a night of drinking, and then getting up six hours later and teaching. It was like my own real life version of another round. I felt very mods. I probably gave a very inspiring lecture that day with photographs of Franklin Roosevelt, but uh, I wouldn't remember. <laughs> uh, nice, nice. Return of the Starbucks Cup. That's the important part. All right. Todd, what do you have? 
Uh, bourbon. This is the Earl Settler bourbon. So very nice. Very haven't nice. had it before. Oh, how is it? It's got a bit of a bite. It's good though. Oaky. Okay. Okay. Nice. All right. Well, um, I I thought it was appropriate that uh, with the movie that we're reviewing today, that I get something from Rogue Brewery. So uh, I went to uh, I I got this can here. It is uh, a seasonal. It's the Newport Nights West Coast IPA. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. So there it is. Rogue. Nice. Since we're talking about someone who goes rogue, I thought it would be appropriate to do a rogue brewery. You know, if A24 was to ever put out like a beer can, that would probably be it. <laughs> <laughs> like the look, the label, the kind of neon that looks really A24. If A24 were a beer can, it would be rogue Newport Nights. If they ever put out a beer like can, it. it would look like yeah. that. Yeah. A24 does kind of sound more like a brewery than a production company. Well, I, I'm, I'll, I'll wait for their uh, for their line of draft beers coming out. Todd, I have to ask, has, have you ever seen another person wear a Sean Kemp shirt? It, do people <laughs> do that in Seattle? Uh, I've never seen one before. I, at least not I mean, I've seen people wear like retro Kemp jerseys, but no, I think I'm the only one with a Kemp shirt. But I do. I wherever I wear it, whether I'm in Vegas or Seattle or wherever, like I still, I always get called. Oh, that's a yeah, that's a conversation starter right there. You can't walk by on the street without <laughs> someone mentioning. Yeah, some Rain Man. Like maybe one of his children. Maybe he. Maybe <laughs> one of his twenty-seven children. All right. Well, uh, let's get into what we've been watching, and we are going to start this one with Zach. Zach, tell us about your Criterion Watch. All right, so the Criterion Watch for this week is a film that, Todd, according to our website, Todd has actually seen, and it's from oh. a director that we've talked quite a bit about because they came out with a movie a few years ago that we all thought stunk. And the director is none other than Paul Schrader, and the film is Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, a movie that um, I actually own. I think it's actually maybe the most beautiful Criterion case of any Criterion film. I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I've never actually sat down and watched the whole thing. And this is an absolutely fascinating movie. Um, Todd has talked about how Schrader is a pretty talented uh, writer, but when he gets in the director's chair, that's when things get kind of topsy-turvy. Um, I would disagree with him on the basis of this movie. This is a story about, um, it's, it's a real-life, uh, uh, main character, Yukio Mishima, who was one of Japan's great uh, novelists and uh, writers in the post-World uh, War II era. Um, the movie kind of shows, the movie does some some really interesting stuff. It, it basically has kind of three different strands, um, besides being a film that's in four chapters. Uh, one strand is that it shows the last day of Mishima's life, and if you know anything about Mishima, you know that um, he committed uh, ritual sebuku or harakari, um, another strand of the movie uh, kind of shows flashbacks in black and white, uh, kind of a greatest hits type thing. And then a third strand actually depicts um, four or three of his novels, but as like staged, almost like kabuki theater sets, which are really kind of avant-garde and interesting. I'm not really familiar with a lot of Mishima's work, so... Um, I was not really uh, aware of uh, the, the the literary works that um, 
were depicted in the movie, but you can kind of see some parallels between what he wrote about and then kind of the ordeals that he had in his own life. What One thing that I think is really interesting about the movie is that Mishima is a pretty unlikable character. Watching the movie in 2021, it's especially interesting because he was basically like almost a you know super uber nationalist who really despised the idea of international collaboration. Um, and he was kind of a right winger. He had his own like insurgent militia that kind of you know invaded this army base at the end of the movie. Um, and so watching in 2021, it's kind of hard to ignore some of the parallels between right-wing militia movements in, in our country. Um, and I think it's, it actually makes for a kind of great, compelling storytelling because he is a really complex figure that you can't totally identify with or even really admire. Um, <laughs> the movie is fascinating. I give it four stars. I think it is a bold, audacious movie about a, a person who I had very little knowledge of. And it feels more like a 70s movie in the kind of ambition and scope that it has and experimentation. I wish more movies were like this. We've talked a little bit about biopics and sometimes how lame and, and straightforward they are. But this one was just totally uh, nuts and really, really fascinating. Um, I, I, I wanted to learn more about uh, Mishima after watching the movie. Now, part of why I wanted to watch it also is because this has a lot of great extra features. And my favorite special feature on this is... Uh, Paul Schrader's sister-in-law, Chico Schrader, who was married to his brother, Len Schrader, talking about how instrumental a role she played in the making of the film. Apparently, Paul Schrader and his brother, Leonard, did not get along, even though Leonard wrote the screenplay for this film. They were like almost not on speaking terms. She had to work as an intermediary. Also, shocker, Paul and Leonard Schrader are American, and they're making this movie in Japan. And, they, and uh, Paul Schrader at least didn't speak any Japanese, so he had to have Chico Schrader translate all the director... Uh, instructions to the actors and crew on set. I mean, this sounds like, you know, almost like Eleanor Coppola, you know, Heart of Darkness, like th there should be a documentary about the making of this film on top of it just being audacious and bold and experimental in terms of its narrative structure. Um, but she's comes off as really funny. She talks about how Mishima's widow kind of, uh, you know, was, was sort of a jerk to them, um, but eventually gave up the rights to the book. <laughs> It's a great movie. It's my number three now in 1985. Really cool. And uh, I, you know, Paul Schrader hit, hit or miss, but this for me was definitely a hit. So uh, thoroughly enjoyable Criterion Collection. Todd, do you have the same opinion of this one? Uh, well, I mean, I don't give it four stars, but I think it actually is the only Paul Schrader movie I give a thumbs up to, which, uh, which is interesting. I, I think I have it. It's just outside my top 10 of 1985. But uh, the re a reason why I originally watched it, which was probably about a year ago or so, I will listen to this one podcast called Movie Crush. And Boots Riley was on there. And he, uh, he they were going through that movie because he said it was his favorite movie of all time. And it was one of the ones that I hadn't seen that they were talking about with the celebrities. So I, otherwise, I would probably would have never heard of it or come across it because I don't really like Paul Schrader. But it, 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 is, a, it, it is a fascinating movie for sure. Have you ever I, heard of it, Terry? I have never heard of it. Nope. Yeah. Except for the 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 like thirty seconds of time I gave it when uh, Todd told me he watched it, so I had to put it on the website. <laughs> I think it, it is kind of interesting how we have Chloe Zhao, a Chinese director, but of course she's fluent in English and, and lives in the United States, directing a, a quintessential American story and winning Best Picture. We don't often see American directors go abroad and make a story that is quintessentially Japanese, for example. But this is an example of one that actually really works. Then again, I'm not Japanese, so maybe, I don't know, I'd want to hear some Japanese perspectives. But from all, you know, I, I believe it, it's a pretty well-received movie in Japan. All right. All right. So that's the Criterion Watch from Zach. I'm going to go next and talk about my Oscar anniversary watch. Actually, watches because we didn't report on anything last week. 
Uh, so I'm going to report on two this week. I'll be kind of quick with both of them. Um, the first one is uh, one of three lone costume design nominees from 2011. I've watched one of these already. One was Jane Eyre, which is the one I watched from Carrie Joji Fukunaga. And this one is W.E. Uh, this mm. is the movie that was written and directed by Madonna. Madonna. Yeah. Uh, and it is uh, starring Abby Cornish, Andrea Riceborough, James Darcy, Oscar Isaac is in it, um, and, uh, and David Harbour, uh, a few others. Anyways, so this movie uh, is... Uh, kind of telling of the story slash affair of uh of the king uh king edward who ended up abdicating uh to marry the uh american uh wallace simpson and uh and which you've seen if you've seen like king's speech it's the the guy pierce side story in that so it's kind of telling that story uh but at the same time telling it uh in this parallel narrative with um a story revolving around uh, Abby Cornish's character, Wally Winthrop, in modern day uh, times as she is unhappy in her marriage and um, and finds uh, a foreigner that she starts falling in love with, um, who's played by Oscar Isaac. It's, uh, I'll be honest, it's kind of boring. It's it's not that great of a film. I'm giving it one and a half stars. Um, it It thinks it's a lot more interesting than it actually is. Um, it, uh, it plays way too dramatic. Um, and you could tell that you have a musician used to music videos kind of running things because whenever anything gets dramatic, all they do is they throw on music and start doing montages, just like it's a music video. And, uh, it, it just, it, it just made it a, a, a boring watch. It was overly dramatic when it didn't need to be, um, and just unrealistic and just uninteresting in so many different ways. So yeah, one and a half stars. The costumes were really cool because uh, you had uh, you had to go back to the forties for for those, but then you had had all these like modern chic, almost like it was. Uh, um, oh, who's the director of Nocturnal Animals? Um, Tom, Tom Ford. Ford. Tom Ford. Oh, almost like the the Abbey Cornish scenes. You almost had like Tom Ford costume design in it. And then you had had to go back and have some of the the older '40s costumes as well. So, uh, yeah, it was a uh, it, it. Those were interesting, but overall boring movie. Todd, I know you've seen this one. Would you agree? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I I honestly couldn't even remember that much about it. <laughs> I, mean, I, I watched it around when it came out. So, <laughs> all right. Well, the next one I'm going to have you try and guess. So this one is uh, 20 years ago, going back to 2001, and I'm going to say. Probably was in the next four or five if there had been ten Best Picture nominees that year. Iris, uh, it's Iris. You're right. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it was nominated for three acting acting uh, Oscars and won one of them. Uh, you had uh, Jim Broadbent win for Best Supporting Actor. You had Judy Dench nominated for Best Actress and Kate Winslet nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Which I believe this is like what made the the trivia question that Kate Winslet is the only person to be nominated for playing the younger version of an Oscar nominated character twice. Like she did in Titanic. She did it in Iris. Uh, anyways. So Iris is um, talk about a biopic. It's a true story about um, author uh, Iris Murdoch and her, 
her relationship with her husband, John Bailey. Um, and uh, Judy Dench plays older Iris. Kate Winslet plays younger. Uh, Jim Broadbent plays older John Bailey and Hugh Bonneville doing his best Jim Broadbent impression. I, I've never seen anyone. I, I didn't know there was such a thing as a Jim Broadbent impression until I watched Hugh Bonneville in this movie. It's kind of creepy and weird. Uh, but uh, it, it tells a story of, of how they kind of fell in love. And again, it's parallel storylines, how they fell in love while at the same time you see the story of Judy Dench slowly fall into dementia and um, and lose what made her uh, what made her who she was. And that was her mind. Um, this was I found it fascinating. that This came out the exact same year as a beautiful mind, because I felt like it played kind of similarly in that you had a main character who um, who was known for being brilliant. And all of a sudden, the brilliance started to betray them. Um, at the same time, I couldn't watch this movie. And I, I realized this as I was watching it, that movies like this are forever ruined for me because um, no movie about someone falling into dementia and memory loss will ever measure up to the father anymore. I mean, Anthony Hopkins' performance in that has ruined movies like this for me. So if I had watched this movie three months ago, I probably would have given it a lot higher score. I'm giving it a solid three stars, um, but uh, Ju and Judy Dench is fine in it, but she's not Anthony Hopkins. And the the script is way too conventional to even compare to something that that the father did. But um, she's good. Jim Broadbent is okay. Uh, I think he he got uh, the Oscar. He was he was good in this, and he was also really good in Moulin Rouge. Uh, so he it was kind of one of those. You had a great year. We'll give you the Oscar for it. Um, but uh, and Kate Winslet it is amazing as always. Um, both it's kind of funny both Judy Dench and Kate Winslet are dead ringers for the real Iris Murdoch in some weird way I don't think they look anything like each other but if you look at pictures of her young and pictures of her old she looks like both of them it's really weird anyways three stars for Iris uh, have Todd I know you've seen this one Zach I don't know if you have but uh, would you agree with with my assessment yeah I mean yeah we're pretty much on the same page it in, it's a pretty conventional biopic. I do, I do like the performances a lot. But yeah, I mean Jim Broadbent. It was a competitive year too, and he. I don't think he necessarily should have won Best Supporting Actor, but he was the veteran. That's what they did back then, and now. I, the other thing I was looking at with this is they should have given like some sort of best makeup because Jim Broadbent was fifty-two when this was made, um, and and still fairly young. But uh, watching it, it looked like it could have been made like last year because that's exactly how he looks now that young <laughs> yeah yeah and, and well that, that's exactly how he looks now too is is how he looks in iris so uh i thought that was kind of kind of fun too all right well those are my two uh anniversary watches uh we and iris now we're going to todd take us into the cager all right we're going to 2018 it is york alec shackleton movie two, 20 or two, 211 yeah, I don't know why I can spit that out. 211. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Nichols Cage plays Mike Chandler, who is a cop who he's out on patrol with his partner and this high school student that's like forced to be do a ride along because he's like facing expulsion for punching a bully at school. And they wind up at this 211 involving these heavily armed disgruntled mercenaries. And 211 is, of course, the code for a robbery in progress, as any cop aficionado would know. And, um, 
It is a dramatization loosely based on the North Hollywood shootout of 1997, and it's set in the fictional city of Chester Ford, Massachusetts, which I'm pretty sure was supposed to be Charleston, but they shot it in Bulgaria <laughs> for some reason, so I don't think they could use the name. Um, the acting in the movie is pretty atrocious, like right from the very first shot of the movie. The movie is terribly acted. It, it has this aura that it thinks it's being important, like this like Lord of War or Syriana type of international thriller with importance but it's uh it's kind of dumb and boring and has really lame action the director has not done anything else really of note and the only other person i'd heard of in the movie is nicholas cage's son weston cage coppola and um apparently nick cage doesn't even like the movie he kind of disowned it when it came out he broke his ankle while they were filming and uh, he basically said it with the whole thing was disappointing there must have been something in the script but the movie is completely devoid of substance or intrigue um the movie is fairly short, but it doesn't feel that way. It feels pretty long. There's like a lot of interlocking stories that are going on that don't have anything to do with the 2011 or the 211. Um, yeah, I mean, Cage overall, like he's sort of restrained in the movie, which makes me feel like he probably was just phoning it in because in so many of the movies that I've been reviewing, he thinks he's making Citizen Kane and everybody else is phoning it in. But in this way, it's flipped. <laughs> But there is one scene where he flips out and it's so hilariously over the top that the other character actually says, okay, we need you to de-escalate. And I think that's a good way to describe like Nick Cage's like career in the last 10 years. Um, uh, the, the movie is kind of weird overall. It has like the, it loves like the minutia of like career patrolmen, but, and it also is sort of critical of police because it's saying how, you know, cops don't like cameras being around because then they can't beat the hell out of everybody. But it is also sort of a case study in why they need militarized weapons <coughs> for these type of situations when they end up in like this huge shootout kind of thing. It really has no consistency or focus in what it's trying to say. Um, I don't know. I, I think it should have, the, the story should have just like settled down and focused more on the ride along and then that becomes something a lot more serious. But uh, it, I mean, it never should have gone international. I don't care about Interpol or antiquity smuggling or whatever the hell they were talking about. Uh, there are a few scenes that I like that, that that could imply that the director knew what he was doing somewhat, but not enough to make it worth it. I mean, Cage's son is kind of cool. Like, he could be something eventually, but not enough to make the movie worth watching. It's a one and a half star movie, which puts it number 88 on the Cager between It Could Happen to You and Pay the Ghost. So yeah, it's getting down there on the on the list. I'm almost to 100 Cager movies, and so that's definitely near the bottom. Wow! 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 Probably more than than he's seen. How, Probably. How many are actually like? How many has he actually made? Uh, I mean, I don't. I mean, of ones that are actually movies. I mean, it's <laughs> just it's it's a little over 100. Okay, so you're getting close to the end here. Yeah. So okay, let me pull this up. Um. There, I, I right now have seen 92. So yeah, I probably wow. have another 10 or 12. So who's your actor act after uh, Nick Cage? It's got to be Eric Roberts, right? Because he's made like 8,000 movies. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that, that would set me up for the next five years. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Eric Roberts would be interesting. <laughs> Although he's like never out. the main character anymore. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. Well, there are our, uh, our reports in on what we've been watching. Now let's get to our featured review. I love this movie so much. I did not really like this film at all. This is the most Zack movie ever made. You gotta see it. Movie reviews. 
And for this one, we are going to Amazon Prime Video for the latest release they have coming out. And it is Tom Clancy's Without Remorse. What we know, Senior Chief Kelly is the third member to be attacked. Three perps are dead. Killed was his wife. They better hope he doesn't survive. Why is that? He is more dangerous and effective than any man we have in the field. These were foreign attacks on U.S. soil. We have to respond. Who gonna make it right? There's something inside of me that I can't turn off. A part of me that won't stop for anything. No remorse. occurred to you that perhaps John Kelly has done something we can't? Some situations warrant thinking outside the box. Give me a name! He was supposed to be dead. Give me a name. Starring Michael B. Jordan and Jodie Turner-Smith, Jamie Bell, among others. And so I'm going to start out by talking about this one. This was directed by um, Stefano Solima, who is probably best known as the director of the Sicario sequel, Day of the Soldado. Uh, And he's taking on um, this Tom Clancy story uh, written by Taylor Sheridan. So a fairly, um, fairly noteworthy screenwriter. And we meet uh, we meet Michael B. Jordan's character, who is John Kelly, uh, who is a Navy SEAL overseas uh, in Syria and goes on a mission that uh, goes a little haywire. They run into some things they weren't necessarily expecting, which lead to uh, some tragedy once they get back as his team is getting hunted and uh, he survives. But others close to him do not. And he is out to find out what happened and. and find out without remorse. Uh, and that's where you get your title. Um, Jody Turner Smith plays the, uh, the head of his uh, Navy SEAL team. Uh, Jamie Bell plays a, a, a CIA operative that it tags along with some stuff that you definitely think is a little shady at times. Uh, Guy Pierce is the secretary of defense. And it was, a, it was bizarre watching him walk into the rooms like, Oh, I didn't know Dan Aykroyd was in this picture. Um, but uh, it's always good to see Guy Pierce. Uh, this uh, this story, uh, as you get going into it, you realize they're setting something up here. They're setting up a, a classic franchise of Tom Clancy stories that um, that they're I'm they're going to want to expand on from this. Uh, it was it was an OK start to that. I'm going to give it three stars, uh, kind of a lower three stars. It was entertaining. 
it felt like I needed to be in a theater watching it. It it felt like a theater movie. Um, but uh, there's something just fun about a great Tom Clancy story with all the twists and turns and bends and all that stuff in it. Uh, Michael B. Jordan does awesome, uh, and it's cool to see him getting a franchise like this that he might be heading up moving forward. Um, and uh, and I, I really enjoyed it. The action was fun. Uh, the story was a it, it took some twists and turns that didn't really make a whole lot of sense. And I think it was probably about five minutes too long uh, as it, it went somewhere at the very, very end that it really didn't need to go. But um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to give it three stars. It was fun. It, it's it's like the start of uh, streaming summer blockbuster season. If that's a thing now, apparently it is. Um, but uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It was a it was a good uh, a good watch. So we're gonna go to Todd next. Todd, what do you think? There's also a mid credit scene. Oh, there is a mid credit scene that totally sets up the whole uh, the whole um, uh, franchise coming up. So okay, so John Kelly is a supporting player in Clear and Present Danger and Some of All Fears. So it's just the further of the Jack Ryan extended universe because everything needs to be part of an extended universe. Apparently, well, it's Tom Clancy. I mean, Tom Clancy creates his own extended universe here. Yeah, I guess it's all it's all Tom Clancy here. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't have thought it was necessarily the Clancy adaptation though. It doesn't really feel like it. I feel like they only put his name in the title to like appeal to the Amazon subscribers who really like John Krasinski or whatever, but I don't know. It, I, I, it, it feels like a t- uh, Taylor Sheridan movie, though, even though we didn't direct it. Like, uh, But it is like a heightened, exaggerated version of that because his co-writer in this is the writer of Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3. So the movie has that kind of feel. It feels more about strategy than it feels about, than it is concerned with like drama. And it, it, it is less about like cool staging of scenes than it is about like the battles and stuff. The first scene is actually really cool looking, but that's about uh, as far as that, that gets when it actually feels more like a Sheridan movie. I, I think Michael B. Jordan does, does his, uh, his best to try to make it more than just like a spy action movie, but he can't because his character is like too unreal. Like we already have one Jason Bourne, but he's even more of a superhero than Jason Bourne is. Uh, I'm I'm starting to question whether Stefano Salim is actually a good director because his uh, Sicario sequel, which is also written by Taylor Sheridan, was like a big overblown. And other than that, he's kind of made his name in TV. He did like the Gamora TV show and whatnot. But this kind of feels like a souped up TV episode, sort of. I mean, it's got all these references to its spin-offness of the Jack Ryan series. And the, to the point that I don't know that it really stands alone as its own movie. Um, I, I think the twist and stuff, it's pretty clear where it's going when they start to introduce certain characters. So the one character I, I was like pleasantly surprised and like shocked to see was Brett Gilman randomly show up. And I was like, I was like, oh, like, why is he here for like one scene? But OK, um, uh, I also think it's weird that it was rated R because I don't think that it was supposed to be like nothing about it says that it should have been pushed to R because none of the other s- movies in, in, in the series are they're They're all PG 13. And other than like a couple like ugly deaths, there, there's not even blood. Like, I don't know why this is rated R and that that probably would have really hurt its box office, honestly, if, if it was actually released in the theaters. But I think the movie is just a video game. There's no emotional resonance because all the characters are unlikable. And even and then the, the few times that they do actually talk to each other, it's just like a dick measuring contest. I I, I, I think it's not all that removed from Extraction, which we, removed, which we reviewed last year uh, on Netflix. Yeah. 
but uh, it takes itself seriously or it tries to, which is why it doesn't work. I, I'm giving it one and a half stars. Ooh, ooh. Okay. Well, I got it at three. Todd's got it at one and a half. Zach, are you going to split the difference? I'm not going to split the difference this time. This time I'm all on uh, Team Todd. I echo mm. a lot of what Todd says there. Uh, this was a chore for me to watch. Uh, it felt it was an hour and 40 minutes. It felt like it was two hours and 40 minutes. Uh, you know, I'm not really, a, I will say, I'm not really a big Tom Clancy fan. I'm not really a fan of these types of movies. There's uh, absolutely nothing compelling or interesting about um, the, the story that, that's unique. Um, you know, this, this character of John Kelly is supposed to be ghosting this whole time, right? He's supposed to be this kind of guy who, you know, has uh, people think he's dead. The, the Russians think he's dead. People don't know about him. Well, he's causing a lot of shit in the street. For someone who's dead, okay, he's throwing a gas tank on the car in the Dulles airport, okay, he's driving off uh, highways, <laughs> he's causing some major shit for someone who's supposed to be a ghost. So let's be clear about that, okay. Uh, another thing I uh, just thought was ridiculous about this movie is apparently John Kelly has the world's strongest lungs. There are two sequences in this movie when he was underwater for at least 10, 15 minutes. Like in the movie, you know, it, it, it makes no bones about it. Like he is literally underwater for an excessive amount. He's a superhero, of like I said. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. Now I like that Michael Michael B got jacked up for this movie. He has uh, several gratuitous shirt takeoff uh, or shirt removal scenes. I felt like I was watching. Uh, I was on the set of a Matthew McConaughey uh, project um, without Matt Damon there to do his impression. Um, this movie is just ridiculous. His name is John Kelly. That says all you need to know about the character. Later in the movie, we, we learn his name is uh, going to change John Clark. So original, you know, that tells you every, everything you need to know about the originality, lack of originality about this character. The movie tries to be like clever with this whole, oh, we want to start a war with Russia, but it's like, I mean, uh, it, it, it feels very heavy handed. There's also scenes where like, okay, there's a scene in this movie where he literally accosts a member of the presidential cabinet in a bathroom, which is guarded, <laughs> but somehow he gets in the bathroom. And then somehow he manages to accost that member of the president's cabinet outside of the restaurant and hold him hostage when no one knows that he's alive. Okay, give me a freaking break. How many ridiculous scenes? That, now, I know that no one honestly thought about, you know, the logistics of that when they were making this movie very clearly. But if you want me to have any sort of investment in this movie, there has to be a degree of realism. After I turned off this movie, I watched uh, Black Hawk Down was on FX and I watched that for about 10 minutes and that is like so much better trying to do essentially what this movie is trying to do uh, because it doesn't have superheroes it is about people in a real situation and they're really unsure and they're scared shitless and you don't have these stupid freaking action heroes that can take off their shirt hold their water hold their breath underwater and pretend to be a ghost when really they're just causing a whole bunch of shit I don't know I hated this movie one and a half stars Wow. It, it made nobody look like a masterpiece. Actually, I liked it a little bit more than nobody because I like Michael B. I, I thought it was actually more realistic that with the body of Michael B. Jordan, he could cause some of this shit. Bob Odenkirk's not going to be anybody up, up on a bus, but if you have Michael B. Jordan on a bus, I could actually see him you know, beating the shit out of people. He like literally douses himself with water before the scene to make himself yeah. look cooler <laughs> or slippery or, or whatever. I'm not it really sure slippery. what that was all about. <laughs> it was slippery. But uh, okay, so I read this movie was actually in development since 1993, and it was originally supposed to be Keanu Reeves, and then uh, later Tom Hardy. But it took wow. that long to make, probably because it wasn't a very good story. Like that was when the book was published in 1993. But well, and we're, we've been kind of dancing around it. It's setting up Rainbow Six. That's that's what this is all setting up. 
is is getting yeah. Rainbow Six into into the movie world of finally, um, which is a story that, a that Nintendo sixty four game or like in the Super Nintendo game. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, and, and it it was a book apparently back in the nineties, and right, I didn't even know that the the video <laughs> game. And yeah, now now you were getting the movies, um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I I thought it was it was fun. It, there were some definitely some parts that were that were unbelievable, and there were some spots that I was definitely scratching my head. Like that's that doesn't make any sense. There's some well, some plot plot points that are like that that makes no sense. Well, I mean, to, to me, at times it reminded me of the later Fast and the Furious movies. Like that's what that's what it was becoming with, with how ridiculous it is, like how how much destruction there is and, and just just like careless destruction of places and having there be almost no repercussions for it. It's just kind of absurd. It was like a combination of that and then throw in some like old school 90s action, too. Because I like I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that. It is Tom Clancy, so go back to Clear and Present Danger. Go back to Some of All Fears, and and that kind of vibe. It definitely, I think, brings back a little bit here, for better or for worse. No one would watch this movie without the words Tom Clancy being in, in the front of the title and Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, that was the main thing that attracted me to the movie. Not not Clancy. I I don't really like any of those movies either. I'm not even a Hunt for October fan. I guess I'm not talking about us. I'm, I'm talking about a, a, the broader audience, kind of like what Terry was was mentioning earlier. But no, like, that's what I said, like people, because it's on Prime, like, and that's why, like, there's the Jack Ryan series on Prime. That's probably why that they bought the rights to do this. Or maybe without, maybe Prime just has rights to Tom Clancy. I feel like Without Remorse sounds like like a a sitcom from the mid 2000s with Ray Romano or something. Like it just it sounds like a um, Without Remorse. Yeah, <laughs> or like something with Larry David, maybe doesn't sound like uh, you know a, a Tom Clancy uh, action extravaganza. Or kind of, it, might, it kind of sounds like a Bill Burr's stand-up special. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's a Netflix. It's a Netflix stand-up special. That's that's exactly it. W- without remorse, perfect. All right. Well, I kind of liked it. Two of us hated it. We'll see where it goes from here. I think we're we're at least getting one sequel out of this. I think at yeah. least one. He's one of our best actors. So, I mean, hey, if, if, if this is how he gets his gets his money, then do it. Well, and, and they're, they're, I love how they're not even hiding it. I, I, I watched the trailer and in the trailer, it starts off by saying from Tom Clancy, author of Rainbow Six. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's like the, the, it Everyone knows this is where it's going. I didn't even see the preview. That, that, that'd be pretty distracting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is a video game movie. Well, but it it was it was a book that made a great video game, and now they're trying to make it a great movie. So I, I don't know if we've ever had a story take that route before of being a book, then a video game, and then a movie. That's probably the way most people would think of Goldeneye. Yeah, that's that could be. All right. Well, that's without remorse. If anything we just said sounds interesting, it's easy to find on Prime Video right now, and they're. They're uh, advertising the heck out of this thing, too. So uh, I'm sure you'll hear of it, hear about it, get a chance to watch it. All right. So we're going to move on. We have a Mount Rushmore now for our spotlight segment this week. Spotlight. And for this one, Todd, you came up with the idea. I'm going to let you introduce what we're talking about here. Okay. So when, when I started thinking about 
uh, the Oscars last weekend, I I thought like the four acting winners, I really had no problem with any of them winning. Like they were either my first or second or maybe third choice in all the categories. And so I was like, this is like a really good group of winners. And I started thinking about the other years uh, in the past. Like, have we ever had years that are that good uh, of a of a group of four that where there's pretty much like the consensus, like nobody's gonna take any issue with them. And so I wanted to. I wanted. I started thinking about that, and then we sort of agreed. Uh, let's do this, but like bookend it with Anthony Hopkins' two wins. So we got thirty years of movies to look at. So the group of four acting winners at the Oscars. You could look at it as like most deserving within their group, or just like best actors, a, a group of actors to win. I guess. I mean, I guess you could look at it either way. But either way, yeah, twenty twenty was a pretty damn good group of four. Oh man, look at. I, I didn't even think about most deserving. I, I was thinking like best best performance more yeah more that like too. that yeah, yeah. I mean, you could look, okay. yeah it's sort of a hybrid of, of those three things this was a fascinating thing to think about because i think there there are definitely even in almost every year there's one it's like nah okay fine i guess they had to win or there's some that i haven't seen yet so that that always that makes it interesting too all right todd you're the only one that hasn't gone first in anything yet so you're gonna go first and submit your uh your mount rushmore pick so the one that stands out most to me is 1999, because uh, I, I consider Hillary Swank and Girl uh, Boys Don't Cry and Angelina Jolie and Girl Interrupted to be two of the ten best performances ever in their categories, and that alone, along with Kevin Spacey, obviously is perfection in American Beauty. But those three, I think, put that one above everything else. And I mean, Michael Caine is is great. He's, I mean, he wouldn't be my choice in the category necessarily, but that was a stacked category, though. I was going to say, that was one of the most competitive supporting actor categories that we can remember. Yeah, and I think the past winner thing is what vaulted him up just a bit, because I think that that probably was as close of a one through five race as we've ever had in an acting category. So, um, yeah, 1999 would, would be the one that I would choose. Which, uh, which one would winning best supporting actor would make it better, would make it the best? Probably Tom Cruise. That's what I was thinking too. Or Haley Joel Osment. I would say Haley Joel Osment. Yeah. But he was lead. He, he should have been lead. You're right. He could have been lead. Nah. Bruce Willis is the lead in that movie. All right. All right. All right. Zach, well, Zach. Category fraud. <laughs> all right, Zach. Who do you, what, what year do you have? Well, cat, category fraud is a real thing when I was thinking about this list. Uh, 99 is an interesting year. I was actually thinking about 99 too. 99 for me represents um, something that was common when I was thinking about this, which is that three of the four winners are really good, but the fourth one I just have to disqualify. And, the, and for me, the fourth one would be Michael Caine. I mean, that is that to me, that's a fraudulent performance in a sentimental Oscar Beatty type role that beat four other much more deserving nominees. The other three are really good, obviously. So there were a few years like that. I had to make sure that all four of them lined up. And I also wanted to make sure that there wasn't an example of someone who gave a good performance, but frankly, they beat out a better performance. So like, for example, 01, Denzel's great in Training Day, but it should have gone to Russell Crowe. Nicole Kidman's great in Hours, but it should have gone Julianne Moore. I had to disqualify those years for that reason. So I had two years that I really thought of. Uh, I'm just going to go with the earlier year, which for me is 1993. 1993 has a solid group. Tom Hanks, Holly Hunter, Tommy Lee Jones, Anna Paquin, probably doing their most career-defining work with the possible exception of Tom Hanks. Of course, he would win the Oscar the next year, too. But uh, 
that that's stacked. I don't think anybody in any category beats out someone who gives a superior performance. Supporting actor that year is also arguably one of the strongest supporting actors of all time. But I don't think looking back on it, you know, 27 years later, anybody has any problem with any of those rules. I, I considered 1993, but yeah, I, I looked at Tommy Lee Jones and was like, Ugh. I mean, Ray Fiennes. Ray, ha- yeah, and John Malkovich. Like and John- both, both of them I have ranked higher. I, I mean, that's why I had that one just a little bit lower. But Tommy Lee Jones is so good in that movie that he was in the sequel to it. it he wasn't even the main character. <laughs> I think every... He was the sequel. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's a co-lead role. Too. I mean, half the thing is about the marshals and the fugitive. I uh, again, I, I I don't agree with that. I think he makes a really compelling character in that movie, and it's a high war performance that not a whole lot of actors could have done as good of a job on. And then obviously you have Anna Paquin, one of the ten, well, I would one of the great kid performances of all time. We were just talking about Haley Joel Osment, and she was uh, the upset in that category. I mean, no one thought she would win. So I give the, the Academy props that year for for giving it to the right performance. I have not seen In the Line of Fire, and I have not seen What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Both incredible performances. And I think those you could maybe make the case were better than Malkovich, but it's just, or excuse me, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, but uh, just a, a staffed category. Yeah, that's a good choice. All right, so we have, we've got 1999, we've got 1993. All right, I, I went through and I came up with, with five that I would consider and none of them have been said yet, which is kind of cool. I'm going to go with the one that was top on my list, uh, which is going to be the most recent one that we're going to say. And that's 2007. That uh, my Daniel, Daniel day Lewis for there will be blood. Marion Cotillard for Levy and Rose Javier Bardem, no country for old men and Tilda Swinton for Michael Clayton. Um, Daniel day Lewis, there will be blood. I mean, that's, that is an all time performance um, from a guy who all he does is give all time performances. Um, and, uh, Marion Cotillard, I, I remember this was like the upset. This was the win that wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, I think she had won the golden globe leading up to it. And that was about it, but completely transformed, transforms herself in this movie, uh, and is completely unrecognizable. And this is before anybody really knew who she was. And, um, and this really launched her career, which was great to see. One of the most iconic villain performances of all time with Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men. Everyone knew he was going to win it and nobody really cared because he was that good. And then we kept on referencing the 07 supporting actress um, category when we were talking about this year's actress category and that everyone had kind of won something. And uh, honestly, it could have gone to any one of these and I would have been fine. Because all five performances are amazing. Tilda Swinton ended up winning the Oscar. Um, and I think it's great that we can say Oscar winner Tilda Swinton because of this. And in a lot of ways, it's probably the least Tilda Swinton, Tilda Swinton performance she's ever given. Uh, because it's the most grounded and normal when she usually goes for the more surreal and fantastical. Um, and uh, and that, that gives her... Uh, great moment there but i mean ruby d kate blanchett saoirse ronan or amy ryan all could have been could have been the winners here and no one would have complained but um yeah that is just a stacked lineup and that that was the top on my list as i went through yeah that's a good one uh, neither of the ones you chose were the ones that i highlighted in my top eight <laughs> i had a eight and neither of those were the, among them wow so. 
Wow. Okay. Well, now we've so we've got 1999, 1993, 2007. We get one more. That we have to agree on and have a consensus with Todd. What were some, what was, what's one you want to uh, discuss here? Well, the, the one that I had ranked highest next was 2016. Uh, Casey Affleck in Manchester by the sea, Emma Stone in La La Land, Mahershala in Moonlight and Viola Davis in Fences, which is sort of category fraud there too. But I mean, I, she definitely deserved to win the Oscar in those, in, among those performances. I, I think all the, all four of those are kind of, undeniable like they were going to win and they should have won in that category yeah that that definitely made my top five it was fifth but it made my top five zach do you have one that you want to throw out there uh i don't like that year as much because denzel should have won and i don't think emma stone is that amazing in la la land um who who was gonna win otherwise like oh i'd have to look i'd have to look i mean i don't know that was probably the second place but who I else just, was in that category? Natalie Portman for Jackie, I know, is a is a favorite. It's just not a particularly strong. It strong was not year. a strong lineup, really. Meryl Streep, Florence Foster Jenkins, Ruth Nega Loving, and Isabel Huppert for Elle. I probably would have given it to Natalie Portman, but it's, I just don't think it's that strong of a category. Um, I would submit, although t- I know Todd's going to disagree with me on this one. I would submit 1996. I think that's a pretty strong year. Uh, Francis McDormand's great. Uh, I know Todd doesn't like Jeffrey Rush, but I think he's amazing in that movie. Um, I think that pretty much any, I, I would, most of what I would, cont- most of what I would submit would be mid nineties Oscars. I mean, 95 is pretty strong too. 97 strong. Those, yeah, those, those are all are pretty good. I, I had on so, those too. I don't 90, know, 96, I mean, Ever Norton, <laughs> they should have won. Like there's no, there's well, no, and, well, yeah, William H. Macy probably should have won. Okay. I, I'll take it back. Maybe, Maybe 95, but I don't love Kevin Spacey winning. I think it should have gone to Ed Harris, but the other three are all pretty strong. The 95 supporting actor was pretty damn strong, too, though. I mean, yeah. that with uh, uh, Brad Pitt. Farmer Hoggett. James Cromwell. Farmer Hoggett. Yeah. And Tim Roth. Yeah. yeah I, won ch- Oscar nomination. I changed my mind. 95 would be my submission. <clears throat> I would have I would have considered 95, but I've never seen The Mighty Aphrodite, so I... Didn't put it on my list. However, number two, no the. <laughs> oh, I, I thought it was the. Oh, anyways, um, anyways, uh, number two on my list was 1997, with Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt for as good as it gets. Robin Williams, Goodwill Hunting, yeah. Kim Basinger, Ellie Confidential. I, that that is a, a pretty solid lineup, and even having both leads come from the same movie, um, I, it was very deserved. So that was that was one that was um. That was on my list. I also had, let's see here, I also had 2004 was another one that I considered. Um, Jamie Foxx, Hilary Swank, Morgan Freeman, Kate Blanchett. Zero for sideways. But zero for sideways. You, you can't have it. We, our, our website cannot sign off on that, just like we can't yeah. sign off on 2000 for the same reason. It's just, we yeah. can't do it. It's true. It's true. And then the other one I had was uh, 2012, which was, let me see here. Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, Jennifer Lawrence, Christoph Waltz, and Anne Hathaway. Yeah, that wasn't one that I highlighted, but that was another that's another really good one at least. That one was that one was weird because the supporting actor, I mean, no one uh it was it no one really felt like des- they deserved the win. <laughs> supporting actor? Well, they all won something. Yeah, they all won something, but none of them really felt like an Oscar winning performance. Well, Philip Seymour Hoffman, like I mean that that's some of his best work. True. Yeah, he, he should have. He could have. He he should have won. But I, Christoph Waltz winning isn't that 
that horribly. But anyways, 1997 would be my 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 throw out there. So we've got what Zach says 95. I say 97. Todd, you said. I said 2016. 2016, right. Are we going to talk about well, I mean, 2020, honestly? I'm okay with 2020. Oh, God. Yeah, let's go 2020. That's the, That has to be it, right? I mean, what Todd just said, yeah. Uh, yeah. This is the first year where really all four of the performances were like, there's really no issue with any of them. I mean, they were all incredible. It's true. It's true. I mean, the, the one that I would I would have any issue with would be Yoon Yoo Jung. For Minari, just simply because that that type of performance is one. I mean, it's it's Little Miss Sunshine. That that's Alan Arkin in Little Miss Sunshine. It's it's basically the exact same character. The 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 grumpy curmudgeon of a grandparent that it becomes the mentor for the young kid. Uh, but she's still great in it, and and I have no problem with her winning. But yeah, but I I say I'm good with 2020. Do it. And and not just for the quality of the performance, but I mean, it's just a cool lineup too. Can we talk about the worst years? Did you guys think of worst years? Because I have a couple. Yeah, let's do it. I didn't necessarily think about it, but go, go ahead and start the conversation. Okay, well, my worst year overall was not too far back of a year. It's 2017. I think history will not remember those four performances fondly and the best one was Francis McDormand but it's in a movie I thought that sucked so that's actually a half decent performance but the other three not great you guys will probably disagree with me but I, I'm not I I'm do not disagree I thought about putting that in my top five but I think 2010 is also fairly weak but I know you guys will disagree with me because of Natalie Portman well yeah Natalie Portman is amazing I mean I think every year has at least one that that holds it up yeah, and I mean, I, I mean, I think Christian Bale is amazing in The Fighter as well. But I mean, I I wouldn't. Colin Firth, I think though. Colin Firth is is amazing in King's Speech too. Melissa Leo, it wasn't even the best nominated in the category from that movie. I would I would have gone with Amy Adams over her. Um, no, I was gonna say 2019 potentially. I mean, when your leads are Joaquin Phoenix and Renee Zellweger. Yeah, but I and, think, and and Brad Pitt. It's great to call Brad Pitt yeah. an Oscar winner, but I mean, he was probably the least worthy of a performance of the ones nominated. And Laura Dern is great, but I, I was picking a worst. I mean, I mean, nineteen ninety eight's hard would be hard yeah. to argue with. Actually, that's that's one I thought of too. That's because well, you 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 neglect Jim Carrey for Best Actor, which is un- pretty unforgivable, and. Uh, you give supporting actress to someone who's on screen for five minutes, and yeah. then you James have a call in an awful movie. In a, an awful movie directed by Paul Schrader. So, <laughs> I would I would sign off on ninety eight. That's a good one. Who should have won supporting actor that year? Ed, Ed Harris, Harris again. Ed Harris, Kristoff, of course. Yeah, that's a no brainer. I don't know who else is in there on right off the top of my head. Uh, Robert Duvall, Civil Action, Jeffrey Rush, Shakespeare in Love, and Billy Bob for A Simple Plan. Ugh, yeah, definitely not great. <laughs> not a great group. Yeah, but, you know, Roberto Benigni did give us, but you know, he he gave us a good acceptance speech, but he also have a, had a good acceptance speech during uh, the foreign film award. Let's just forget about the '98 Oscars. That's one we can kind of well, I think remember. I think it's fair to say though that from what we've been saying, there haven't been that many like downright clunkers in in the in the full lineup. I mean, the, the, every, every lineup has something that makes it 
noteworthy. Um, and uh, and that that's good. That's good. And there there are some amazing ones too. All right. So our our four are. 1999, 1993, 2007, and 2020. And I, yeah, I don't think we can, that, that's a pretty good consensus one there. Cool. All right. Moving on. It is time for Power Rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power Rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. And our last time on Power Rankings, which was about a month ago, uh, was uh, Zach won our game. So Zach got to pick the category. No, wait, hold on. How did this work? Who won the game? Nobody. Nobody won. We all got a point. The points don't matter. Arlette chose the category. Arlette chose the category. Adam Daly's wife chose our category. And I think she chose a pretty brilliant one here. Uh, Our category is the top five best musician performances so best performances by someone you would consider a musician uh first and foremost so that that is what we're doing here and this was a lot of fun to to think about i texted todd and said we're not doing one per decade for this one are we because honestly i don't think that would be fair because this seems to be a little bit more of a of a recent trend of uh music stars turning into actors and uh, the other thing I realized is once you get back a little ways and get into get into the old time, like, you know, MGM musical type stuff, the line between actor and singer was very blurred. So <laughs> uh, so that's what we have here. Uh, Zach, you're going to go first with your number five best performance by a musician. Uh, go for it. All right, this was a tough category. As Terry was saying, I really tried to stick to just musicians. So no Jennifer Lopez, no Snoop Dogg. If you have significant movie credit, no most deaf. I mean, at this point, they are probably actors more so than they are musicians. So I had to stay away from that. I even had to stay away from Ice Cube and Boys in the Hood, who might have been my number one. But I, it's just not fair anymore because I think most people now know him as an actor. Um, my number five is someone who I di- don't really know particularly well. I didn't even really know he was a musician until um, re- doing research for this category. Of course, of course very you know strenuous hours uh, long research for this category. Uh, it is uh, Tunde Adepimpe for Rachel Getting Married. He plays Sydney, who is getting married to Rachel. Now, I was not aware that this guy was a musician, but of course it makes sense if you've ever seen Rachel getting married, that movie is kind of wall to wall with music. And actually the character of Sydney is a musician in the movie and he does uh, perform later on in the movie. But um, I think it's a really interesting role because he it's not a very flashy role. Of course, most of the flash in that movie is Anne Hathaway and Rosemary DeRitt and De- Deborah Winger and um, Bill Irwin as a father. Um, but always in the background, Sydney's just there kind of smiling and he's kind of like, he, he has that really good scene where he does the, the dishwashing contest with the father character. Uh, it's, it's a subtle performance. That's typically what I was kind of looking for with, um, with musicians. I also wanted to pick, of course, I just went back on this, but I wanted to pick musicians that were trying to play non-musicians. Of course, I guess Sydney is a musician, but I think he's really good in that movie. It's not, you know, a flashy role. You might not even really remember him too much in the movie, but I think given that he didn't have a whole lot of acting experience and he's going up against these actor powerhouses in a Jonathan Demme movie, he more than holds his own. So uh, I really, I, I like his performance a lot. All right. All right. 
I don't fully remember that character, but if I watched it again, I would. Okay, I'll go next. Uh, number five on my list, I actually just just changed as I was thinking about it. I've been audible. debating on this one. Yeah, I pulled a little bit of an audible. Well, same person, different performance. Um, and uh, that person is Madonna. Uh, so number five is Madonna. And I was debating which one to go with, and I'm going with A League of Their Own. And uh, and uh, all the way May, uh, she is so so funny in this movie, um, and so good just leaning into that uh, that New York Brooklyn uh, persona, and um, and her and her and Rosie O'Donnell are like have like perfect chemistry together in this movie, um, and she's she's one of the bright spots for sure. You you would never know that she wasn't uh, an actress first. Uh, and the one I was debating with, I was debating between this and Avita. I love Avita, um, but it's a little easier for why well, eventually went away from it. She carries that movie and does a great job, but it's a little easier for um, for a, a singer to carry a musical than it is for her to be a baseball player. So <laughs> I, I went with uh, I went with uh, Madonna, the baseball player, as uh, all the way May. Mortabito in uh, A League of Their Own. That seemed like an easy choice for you. Yeah, yeah. It, it was. It was. But I almost didn't go with it. I, I, I was I was conflicted on which one to go with. Not, right. not, not we. Yeah, not, not, not W-E as writer-director Madonna. No. I also don't necessarily agree with your, your parameters you put on your list, Zach, and we'll, we'll talk about that more when I get to different ones on my list. All right, Todd. Well, the only thing I did to narrow down my list was if they were nominated for an Oscar for that movie, then I didn't include it because that made it that would have made it way too easy. And there were basically the five would already be chosen for me. So I, I went away from those people. Uh, so my number five is Dwight Yoakam in Panic Room, where he plays one of the criminals who's breaking into the house. It's him and Oscar winners Jared Leto and Forrest Whitaker. Uh, and he's like this sort of silent psychopath character. And he's he's kind of like chilling to watch. Like the sound of his voice is just evil. And I guess it's not the first time he acted. He was in Sling Blade. I think people would uh, remember him from that. But uh, here we got like two great actors who are overacting around him. And he's like this white trash scary man. And he kind of walks away with the movie. And I, I, he rightfully like, gets executed in the end of the movie. But I mean, that just proves it wasn't just stunt casting. It was he's actually a pivotal character. And they got the right guy to play the role. And Dwight Yoakam's a, he's a singer. He's not an actor. So that's why he's my number five. I don't really remember him from that. Yeah, I don't remember him either. <laughs> I, I really just kind of remember Forrest Whitaker and Jared Leto and that that crew. Well, it's because he's like, he's the one in the back that doesn't really talk. Like, but he's like, he's scary. He's like Ben Foster in Hostage. <laughs> and there you go. Oh, okay. That's the first time that movie's been brought up on this podcast. There we go. There we go. All right. Zach, number four. All right, my number four is uh, kind of similar to my number five in the sense that it was an, a musician who held his own in a actor-dominated dominate, movie with some powerful performances, one of which won an Oscar. And that is Sean Puffy Combs in Monster's Ball. Nice. Um, he's mm -hmm. awesome in that movie. He's not in a whole lot of it, but the scenes that he's in at the beginning of the movie and his exchange with Billy Bob when he's uh, doing the drawings, which of course play a major role in the story, 
I mean, his facial expressions, it's not even so much like in the dialogue. Uh, he's extraordinary. And um, it's a movie that is an actor's movie and he doesn't disappoint. Like you could, you could have maybe put in someone else in the movie, wouldn't, wouldn't have held it up as well. But um, he's the powerful force that unites the Billy Bob and uh, Halle Berry characters. And uh, you, you just see a, a, a life of pain and agony and, and sadness uh, within him. It's totally not flashy, not at all what we would have thought Sean Puffy Combs would have played. And uh, he's, he's amazing. I feel like he should have gotten a Best Supporting Actor nomination. Well, it wasn't in a whole lot of the movie, but he's, he's awesome in it. Yeah, his son, I remember, was on my worst performances in four-star movies list. So, yeah, I mean, that's the, the son, one they should have recast. The son needed a little bit of work, but <laughs> Sean Combs was great. All right. All right, well, my number four, um, uh, Todd, I, I should have merlot you because you could have been describing my number four, which is Dwight Yoakam in Sling Blade oh. <laughs> as Doyle Hargraves. And pretty much everything you said about his character in Panic Room, you could say about his character in Sling Blade. He is a a this horrible white trash uh, father who um, thankfully gets executed at the end. I mean that <laughs> this yeah. it's kind of the same the same arc, but uh, no, he is a, a forgotten villain, like completely menacing villain from this movie uh, that I if we were doing like a list of like top 10 villains of the last 30 years, he would probably be on my list. Cause it is just a horrible, horrible character. And he does such a great job. And apparently he just does a great job at playing horrible people. But, um, but yeah, he, he is unforgettable in, in sling blade and uh, is the reason why, uh, why Carl Childers has to, uh, has to do what he does. So, um, yeah, number four is Dwight Yoakam in Sling Blade. It's hard to argue with that one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was it, he basically was playing the, I was he was basically playing the same character he played in Panic Room. It sounds like so. <laughs> All right, Todd, number four. Okay, for my number four, I'm going to uh, Holy Motors, and I'm taking Kylie Minogue because um, she is in. <laughs> She's in the most emotional scene in the movie. It's like this dreamlike singing sequence. And it is a musical type scene. But the reason why I thought about it, uh, first off, was because Leo Scarax, the director, he has this musical musical coming out this year with Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard. But it, if he could have a scene that's as heartbreaking as this little scene in his like ridiculous movie holy motors then uh, i i can't i can't wait to see what what that looks like. And uh, because this scene is like probably one of the best scenes in the movie and it has like it reveals a lot about the characters. She eventually like leaps to her death. Maybe that's a, a theme in my list. I guess I don't know. But um, her her voice is just pure. I mean, and it and it it almost defeats the purpose because it is you know she sings in the biggest scene in the movie, but she has dual roles and she is really great in the movie. So Kylie Minogue, I don't really know her music, but uh, I know her as an actor in Holy Motors. Terrible pick. I, I, I remember her most so as the fairy from Moulin Rouge. Yes, that uh, that's a much more memorable role. Yes, yes. She's the green fairy in Moulin Rouge after oh. they after they drink absinthe. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that. Obviously, they don't either. <laughs> they don't either. All right, Zach, number three. Well, let's keep the Dwight Yoakam train going. I'm going Dwight Yoakam in Wedding Crashers. Why not? No, I'm not. Okay. I... <laughs> 
was not expecting to. I feel like that should almost disqualify your choices if he's going to show up twice. I for mean, two different roles? Clearly, for two different roles, like, then the guy's probably more of an actor than he is a musician. But uh, well, I don't know his music either, so. Yeah, me neither. Honestly, Dwight Yoakam is one of those people that, like, I don't know what he looks like. Maybe I've seen him in movies. I just don't remember, like, he doesn't seem that distinctive. But, okay, I'll um, okay, my number three is, uh, I mean, maybe we could disqualify this. I don't know. I don't care. I'm going Andre Day, The United States versus Billie Holiday. I saw that movie last week. Um, now, is it a great movie? No. The movie has problems. It's Lee Daniels. It's not perfect. But wow, she is amazing. And when we did our Oscar predictions a few weeks ago, I said that my vote reluctantly would have gone to Carrie Mulligan. At the time, I had not seen The United States versus Billie Holiday. Uh, my vote would go to, to Andre Day because she is amazing in that movie. She looks like Billie Holiday. She has, it, it's like that movie Little Voice with Michael Caine. Like her voice is like the exact same as Billie Holiday. She has range. She ages in the movie. It is it is a total Oscar vehicle. I get that, okay? It, it, and she goes for broke in the movie. She gives it her all. And uh, she is dynamic, explosive. Um, I've never seen Lady Lady Sings the Blues with Diana Ross, but I, I can imagine that she far exceeds Diana Ross's portrayal of Billie Holiday. Um, and it should have won Best Actress. I'm glad Frances McDormand won. It's great. No Man Land's a better movie overall. But Andre Day, I mean, that was maybe the performance of the year last year. She's extraordinary in that movie. I still need to see that. I really like I said, to. it's the most acting of last year. And she was, yeah, she was, she's insane. And she, yeah, she would have gotten my vote as well. Yeah. And again, it's just kind of the shock value. Like, you know, to a certain degree, okay, well, Dwight Yoakam, we know he's a great, obviously a great actor, right? Great musician. He's great in everything. Andra Day, kind of coming out of nowhere. And I remember she talked about on, on, on the red carpet before the ceremony that, you know, she really was not, it didn't seem like she was a huge fan of acting. It seemed like it was very cumbersome, which is understandable because that role uh, must have been extremely difficult to play. And I can't imagine anybody else playing it after seeing her as Billie Holiday. All right. All I think right. you need to see it, Terry. I do. I really do. It's it's on my list to watch very soon. All right. Well, number three for me. Um, so Todd had his arbitrary rule of uh, if they were nominated for an Oscar, they couldn't uh, be on the list. And Zach obviously just broke that rule. And I'm going to break it right here because my number three is Lady Gaga in A Star is Born. Uh, very definitely a, a musician first. Very definitely known as a singer and very definitely an amazing, brilliant performance. And what makes this one different than, um, than other ones that I'm like, like I said, with Madonna in Evita is that uh, Lady Gaga in this, it, it is so stripped down and it's so um, it's so raw and real. And, um, and yes, yeah, she's a singer, but that, that, that is secondary to the, the acting she actually does. And, and to be with, uh, on screen, share the screen with with Bradley Cooper, who is proving to be one of the best working actors we have, and hold her own in in all those scenes. It shows that she truly is a great actress, and uh, is going to be uh, for quite some time. So, uh, yeah, number three on my list is Lady Gaga, A Star Is Born. Yeah, I mean, she's obviously amazing in that. So. Yeah, <laughs> the only issue I would have with that is like, I mean, she's sort of playing herself in a way, and I don't think it's that stretch of that much of a stretch for the role, but she is great in it. 
and she obviously sings in the movie. True. I guess that's a plus. I don't know. I tended to value, I mean, like the way that Arlette kind of phrased it, or at least that, that it was phrased to us was in a way sort of unexpected performances, right? I think you would expect Lady Gaga to give a performance or it, as, a, as a character like that. I, I don't know. That wasn't really specified. It wasn't, Just but performance I, sort of the way musician. I interpreted it. And, yeah, but they have to be known as a musician first. So I don't know. Yeah. All right, Todd, number three. My number three is Janelle Monet in Hidden Figures. Uh, that's a good one. I I always thought she gave the best performance in that movie. She yeah, has the most fire of all of the leading ladies in there. She she's got more spunkiness and confidence, and she just like she's she's great. She pops off the screen, and she in that year she also had Moonlight. It's really surprising that she hasn't been given like a movie to herself other than like Antebellum. Like she, I, I think she could actually carry like a like a real big studio drama if she wanted to. Um, but she doesn't have the like the lines that Octavia Spencer has. She doesn't really have like the way to play it up like Taraji P. Henson does. But she's she just oozes leading lady in that movie, and I, I think she's amazing. And I don't again, I don't know her music, but <laughs> she's great in Hidden Figures. Yeah, that's a that's an honorable mention for me for sure. Good call on that one. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd agree. She's one of the best parts of that movie. She deserved the uh, the Oscar nomination over Octavia Spencer for that movie. Yeah, yeah. All right, Zach, number two. Okay, my number two is uh, Dexter Gordon and Round Midnight from 1986, movie that I really, really love and admire. Uh, a movie that got some Oscar attention that year. I believe it won Best Score, Herbie Hancock. Uh, but basically it tells the story by the, by the late director Bertrand Tavignier, who just died a, a couple weeks ago. Um, but it's all about this, uh, this jazz musician who uh, is an expatriate and he is basically dying. And it's sort of like uh, he travels to Paris to try to resurrect some semblance of his career. He's a former drug addict. Um, he's not someone who is particularly glamorous at all, and Dexter Gordon is not a very glamorous actor, but uh, the movie does a really good job of portraying this kind of down-and-out figure um, who uh, actually befriends this younger French guy who tries to resurrect his career a little bit because he has an interest in jazz music. Um, but basically, uh, his drug addiction kind of overwhelms the, the character by the end of the movie. Martin Scorsese was an executive producer in the movie, and he also has a small role in it. But Dexter Gordon it was primarily known as a, as a tenor jax, uh, as jazz uh, tenor saxophonist, and he's amazing in the movie. I don't know if he did anything else in terms of his acting career, but um, it's a really good movie. I think it's the best movie ever made about jazz, way better than <laughs> La La Land. And, uh, Whiplash? No, I said uh, uh, La La Land. Although I would also yeah. say it's better than Whiplash. Okay, well, I'm saying yeah, Whiplash is <laughs> is about jazz, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I think I don't know. I've never seen Round Midnight, so I guess I can't say that. But I mean, Whiplash is an amazing movie. Yeah, it, well, they're very they're very very different movies. I mean, this one is it's about jazz, but it's also about like the decline and you know the the addiction of this character. Actually, in some ways, it's a, a little more similar to like the Bradley character, Bradley Cooper character in A Star Is Born, um, but just in the jazz world in Paris in the late fifties. But Dexter Gordon's amazing in it. It's a movie that deserves more attention. Criterion Collection. I'm I'm looking at you. Should, you should you should release it because I can't find it anywhere. But I remember seeing it a while ago and really liking it. All right, have not seen that. Yep, and I've just con I've just confounded everybody watching, all three viewers. 
go check it out somewhere. I don't know if it's on Amazon, but bootleg it or something. Check your local libraries. It seems like a local library type of uh, movie with the DVD yeah. from 1997. Yeah. And what was the musician's name? Dexter Morgan? Dexter Gordon. Dexter Gordon. Okay. Yeah. Now, cool. it is an Oscar-winning movie. Herbie Hancock won Best Score at the 1986 Oscars. So it has okay. some sort of Netflix DVD. There we go. Netflix <laughs> DVD. Let's make, let's, let's make it 2013 all over again. Let's get the DVDs going. <laughs> All right. Uh, number two for me is uh, possibly one of the the greatest uh, surprises and uh, pleasant surprises at the movies I've ever had. Um, and I think it's it's hard to argue that this uh, isn't a, a musician's performance. And that is Glenn Hansard in Once. Um, I, I love this movie. I love everything about this movie. And this is I, I could say it's a tie between Glenn Hansard and Marquetta Urglova. Who play the main the main two characters and these are two people who are just making music as in the group the swell season and decided to make a movie based on their music and it is one of the the greatest movie musicals and greatest movies i've ever seen just super small time uh but the glenn hanser gives this amazing performance not only through his music but uh but just in creating this character of uh, of this guy just trying to find a way to to make it big. I love this movie. I love I love this performance. And he hasn't been in a movie since. And honestly, I don't know if he's ever going to be in a movie again. And uh, I think that is a true sign that this was a a a musician uh, acting. So uh, yeah, Glenn Hansard for once. That's my number two. I cannot believe I forgot about Glenn Hansard and <laughs> Wow. Of yeah, course, that's, that's, a, that's an amazing pick, and that should be my number two as well. It's hard to believe it. there would be anything better than that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great choice, but I mean, with my arbitrary rules, I guess I we disqualified that as well because he won an he Oscar. He did win an Oscar. Well, yeah. Not for acting, though. I know. I know. I, that's why I left it off because I wanted to make it a little bit more uh, diversified, I guess. It's like saying, oh, you couldn't pick John Legend for La La Land because he won an Oscar for uh, writing a song for Selma. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't win the Oscar for La La Land. <laughs> well, the, 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 yeah, whatever. I know, right. I know what you mean. <laughs> He's won an Oscar, so... Well, Lady Gaga would be disqualified. Yeah, no, that's, I, that's why... Well, that's, he, she was nominated, so he said... Yeah, he said but she won, though. Nominated. She she also won that year for, for Shallow. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, great pick, whatever. Terry. Yes. Obviously, it's a great pick, yeah. incredible pick. All right, Todd, number two. Yeah, but when your mind's made up, I don't know. Okay, <laughs> my number two is no, uh, no point even talking. <laughs> <laughs> Tupac from Gridlocked, uh, uh, which it might not be his best or most emotional acting, which would be like, <laughs> what? What'd you see, Zach? That's a Todd pick. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, the, the, the like his best acting is probably in Bullet, which is a Mickey Rourke movie. But uh, watching this movie proved that he could have and should have and would have been a bona fide movie star had he not died. Like this is like sort of like post Pulp Fiction '90s movie. It's sort of like a buddy comedy with him and Tim Roth playing heroin addicts. And um, Tupac showed that he had every bit the charisma in that movie as like a Sam Jackson or a Chris Tucker or Will Smith. And he could have eventually gotten the dramatic roles. Uh, other than like hood dramas, like that, if he had continued to act, and of, of all the actors that were rappers, like I feel like he had the most seamless transition. He he's, he could have been bigger than Ice Cube, and um, 
the movie's weird. It's a dirty movie. It's got sort of like a train spotting kind of thing, but it's a showcase for its lead actors. And because of like Tupac, it feels grounded reality and authenticity. And he's amazing in gridlocks. I've only seen the movie once, but Hey, when else am I going to mention that? <laughs> yeah. The only thing I remember about gridlock is that it's spelled with an apostrophe D. Yes. Is that got got to know that. Very uh, 90s thing to do. Yeah. No, I've, I've not seen it. I get that confused with uh, the movie where Tim Robbins has is handcuffed to the other guy. Um, I feel like they're the same movie, but obviously they aren't. You know what I'm talking about? Tim Robbins? I don't know. Am I crazy? Probably. I'm, I'm looking it up. Those don't have to be mutually inclusive things. <laughs> well, I didn't know. I didn't, uh... Tim yeah. Robbins isn't in this movie. Yeah, I get it confused, I think, with Nothing to Lose, with Tim Robbins and Martin Lawrence. But I've never seen either of them. I that might know. be why you get them confused. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Martin Lawrence and Tupac are not the same person. No, and neither are Tim Robbins and Tim Roth. So. Yeah, definitely. But they not. are named Tim. <laughs> they are both named. It's like, it's like who, Bill Pullman and Bill Paxton. Yeah, it's very good. They are the same person, though. <laughs> All right, Zach, number one. All right, my number one should come as no surprise for all three of you who watch this podcast. Uh, Todd knows it already. He's nodding his head. It's Bjork for Dancer in the Dark. Yeah. It's, uh, I think, maybe the, like, the greatest performance of all time just by anybody. So it was always going to be number one on my list. Now, I struggle with this one because, of course, there, uh, Dance in the Dark has come to light the last few years because of the mistreatment by Lars von Trier against Bjork in that movie. Just a lot of harassment, just a lot of really nasty, ugly stuff. So it is absolutely like a case study in how do you grapple with you know a great performance and a great movie with ugly people doing it. And um, I don't know what to do with it. I think it's an incredible movie. I think it's Von Trier's best movie. And I think it's like the best, uh, it's, it's the best lead performance maybe of any per movie in the 2000s. Like she's unbelievable in it. She really hasn't acted in anything else before or since. And uh, you just need to see it to be, to believe that performance. Um, but I love the movie. I, I, you know, it, it's, it's sad, I guess, the things that uh, happen on set, but it doesn't change the fact that for me, at least, it's a really beautiful and timeless movie and performance. But nominated yeah. for an Oscar. Nominated for an Oscar. And it's really? a bonkers movie. Yeah, for, for the song. Yeah, not for actress. Yeah. No. Which was a loaded best actress that year anyway, so it would have been impressive, but she should have been in contention that year. Well. I think you'll be happy to know she is going to be in the new Robert Eggers movie, The North. Oh, yeah. I did see that, actually. Yes. Yeah. Um, I watched it last year because it was nominated for an Oscar now 21 years ago. And yeah, that movie was completely I, I remember. I remember when you watched it. I, didn't I assign it to you or did you just watch no, it? No, I just watched it. I just okay. watched it because, uh, yeah. It's an, all it's an all-timer for me. It's in my top 100 all-time. I don't know. I mean, Von Trier's got a few of those, though. I don't. I wouldn't say it's his best movie. Like Breaking the Waves. Is... Breaking the Waves is a great movie too. Yeah, and of course, The House that Jack Built. But uh, not so much. But <laughs> Von Trier wins biggest douchebag for every movie he's ever made. So maybe I don't. Know. He's had a lot of douchebags in his movie. So every Skarsgård character. <laughs> That's true. Name that Skarsgård. All of them. All <laughs> like, of them. All of them. Yeah, all of them were in uh, Melancholia. <laughs> 
All right. Number one for me, and you guys are probably going to hate this pick and say it doesn't count, but I'm going with it anyways, because one of the things I was thinking about and thinking about uh, performances by musicians, I was thinking about what were they known for at the time the movie was made? And if they were known mainly primarily as a musician, when that movie was made, I counted it. And that led me to my number one, and that is Mark Wahlberg for Boogie Nights. Um, because when that came out, all anyone ever knew him as at that point was Marky Mark. That that's all you that's all anyone knew was Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. And I remember even hearing him talk about uh being a part of this, and he said at that point I was Marky Mark or I was the Calvin Klein model and i i heard about the movie and they and then just thought oh they want to get me in my calvin klein's again and then he read it and then he he did it and i think it is after that movie no one knew him as marky mark anymore he was mark Wahlberg, the actor but leading into that movie he was a he was a musician that was trying to make it trying to get his way into the into the industry and had this just dynamite like insane debut starring performance i think he'd been in like one other movie in some really tiny minor role but uh this was this was what put him okay but this is what put him on the map as an actor and up until then he was he was a musician so i think it counts so i'm going mark Wahlberg and boogie nights I'm never going to argue with you putting Mark Wahlberg on your list, but he, he did, he was in the basketball diaries and he was the star of fear, which was a pretty decent budget James Foley movie. But I'm, I mean, yeah, Boogie Nights, whenever you mentioned it, uh, I think I've won because uh, <laughs> like I'm the only one that ever mentioned that movie on this podcast. <laughs> well, you know, and I, the fact I, we did I, a deep dive on it, but okay. Yeah. yeah exactly. I, I think it counts simply because the, uh, if you were known as that when you when you started, or when that movie came out, it counts. I mean, there, there you you could go yeah. with a lot of different people that that qualify under those those conditions too. But that's I what think, going with. I think the most credible case you have, Terry, is that he gives an amazing musical performance in Boogie Nights oh, of, cool. with his rendition of "You Got the Touch." Yeah, that that is true. That is true. Do you want to hear it? Can I do it? <laughs> you got the touch. You got the power. I think we need a little more, a little less bass, a little more on the vocals. What do you think? <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to be uh, John C. Riley dancing in the background. <laughs> I, I'm waiting for your wife to pop through the door and say, "What the hell is going on right now?" <laughs> Fortunately, she's not home. But did you ever see the clip on uh, Jimmy Kimmel when Mark Wahlberg was introduced with that music? He's like, "Oh yeah." And then he actually <laughs> did an impromptu. <laughs> yeah, I do, I, of it. I do it remember that. One of the great moments on Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> All right, Todd, number one. All right, my number one, it should come as no surprise to probably Zach at least, and that is Courtney Love in The People vs. Larry Flint. Oh, good yep. call. She's playing a role, probably not all that dissimilar to herself, but uh, she's perfect in the role, and she just easily makes that her own. It's one of the high war, highest war performances I've ever seen. She's gritty, kind of annoying, like uh, but totally genuine in that kind of role. She like is a stripper who becomes Larry Flint's wife and uh, she's like addicted to drugs and gets AIDS and whatnot. She completely just disappears. Like it's no longer Courtney Love being on screen. It's no longer a stunt. It is 
amazing performance. And she, it's a travesty that she didn't actually get nominated for an Oscar. She got nominated for a Golden Globe. And she had a bunch of critic awards that she got leading up to that point. But regardless of the merit of her acting career or not, she was always going to be my number one. She, I mean, at the time, she probably wasn't even known as a musician. She's probably known as, uh, you know, being married to Kurt Cobain. Wife is a musician. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it had to be number one, right? That makes sense. That does make sense. Yeah. All right. No, no complaints here. Zach, any honorable mentions? I did have a few. Uh, Tyrese in Baby Boy. I mean, he he leads. He's the lead character in the movie, right? So I is I that his first acting? I think it might have been. Yeah, and uh, he's awesome in it. Um, Sydney Flanagan is technically a musician. That's how Eliza Hittman uh, found her. So I'm calling her a musician. Why not? Why is that not on your list over the guy from Rachel Game Married? I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh, Macy Gray in Training Day, which is a performance I actually called out a few weeks ago when I watched it. She's really good in that movie. Queen Latifah, but not in Chicago. I would say for uh, her performance in a movie called Living Out Loud with Holly Hunter and uh, Danny DeVito, she's really uh, excellent in that movie. Share, but not so much for uh, Moonstruck. I would also say Silkwood and Mask, um, because she's great in those movies too. And then finally, of course, Jose Feliciano in Fargo, because it's Jose Feliciano. Come on, no complaints. No complaints no here. Complaints. <laughs> Beautiful. That's a good call. All right, I've got a few here. Um, Adam Levine and Begin Again. Um, if I if I had room on my list, I would have tried to fit him in there. Um, I, I got Ice Cube, Boys in the Hood. That almost made my list. Um, I was also thinking Donnie Wahlberg has some great performances, and uh, he's probably for most still the guy from New Kids on the Block or Mark's brother now. Um, uh, of course, Eminem and Eight Mile you can mention, and then I've got some that are kind of like riding that line of of the old school. Um, were they were they musicians first or actors depending? So I've got like Bing Crosby and White Christmas, or Al Jolson in the in a jazz singer, or like Frank Sinatra in anything Frank Sinatra did. Um, and then the last one I'll say, uh, going back to kind of my Mark Wahlberg argument, Will Smith and Fresh Prince. I mean, he he was he was a rapper at that point, and they pulled him out of rapping to to star in a sitcom. So, yeah. I think we were only doing movies on this one, but yeah. Yeah, that's why he didn't make my actual list, but he's worth mentioning. All right, Todd. All right, the ones that were nominated for Oscars, Andre Day in the United States versus Billie Holiday, Cher in Moonstruck, Frank Sinatra in From Here to Eternity, Jennifer Hudson in Dreamgirls, Lady Gaga in A Star is Born, and then, of course, Bjork, Glenn Hansard, and Marquetta Arglova. Um uh, I also wanted to mention Justin Timberlake and Alpha Dog because, of course, I was going to mention that. Mar Mariah Carey and Precious, which I think is actually a really good performance. Yeah, that is. Yep. Ludacris in Crash and Hustle and Flow. P. Diddy in Monsters Ball. Tom Waits in Seven Psychopaths. Christina Aguilera in Burlesque. And then Slash in Private Parts and Ozzy Osbourne in Golden Goldmember because, I mean, <laughs> cameos need to be mentioned, too. <laughs> cameos are acting too all right it's now time adam's list let's see how we do zach you're first what do you got 
this is impossible to predict. I'm going to predict that he says that he's seen a lot of these movies, but he hasn't. So I'm just going to go with this. Uh, I'm going with number five, Mariah Carey and Precious. Number four, Jennifer Hudson and Dreamgirls. Number three, Eminem and Eight Mile. Number two, Lady Gaga and A Star Is Born. And number one, Justin Timberlake and The Social Network. All right. I have number five, David Bowie and Labyrinth. Uh, that's, number a good, that's a good pick. Yeah, yeah, I thought I thought that was if he's seen deep. it. If he's seen it, that's the he, it's, his rating is on the website. He's uh, seen okay. it. Okay, that's a good. I was pick. like that that that's a deep a deep dive that he might he might take. Uh, number four, Eminem and Eight Mile. Number three, Queen Latifah in Chicago. Number two, Justin Timberlake, Social Network. Number one, Lady Gaga, Stars Born. All right, I had number five, Glenn Hansard and Marquette Oglova in Once. Number four, Justin Timberlake in The Social Network. Number three, Ice Cube in Poison the Hood. Number two, Aquafina in The Farewell. And number oh, one, Lady Gaga in A Star is Born. All right, here is his list. I'm surprised he didn't give me um, he didn't give me uh, our uh, Arlette's list as well, but uh, we may need to ask for that at a later date. Uh, honorable mentions, he has... Uh, Jack White in Dewey Cox uh, Walk Hard uh, as Elvis Presley. Yeah, I forgot he was Elvis Presley in that. Um, <laughs> Ice T uh, in Gears of War uh, or Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. Uh, yeah, we didn't disqualify video games if I remember right when we went. I said no TV. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think everything he's got in his actual list is movies. Uh, Alanis Morissette in Dogma as God. Oh yeah, um, Christina Aguilera in Burlesque, Aaliyah in Romeo Must Die, nice. Uh, Joey Fatone in My Big Fat Greek Wedding, uh, Jared Leto in Dallas Buyers Club. That doesn't count. That doesn't count. <laughs> it was fourteen a, years after Fight Club. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I know. I know. And and yeah, he started his band after he had already been an actor for way too long. Um, ASAP Rocky in Dope. Um, okay, and flee in the, the Big Lebowski as one of the German nihilists. I didn't realize he was one of the one of the nihilists. That's I didn't. Awesome. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either until the hard research for this list. Yeah. All right. Here's his list. Number five: Lady Gaga, A Star Is Born. Uh, loved her performance in this film, and it makes me excited for her next role in House of Gucci. Oh, and that that's her and uh, Adam Driver, right? Yeah, and yeah. Pacino. Yeah, it's a Ridley Scott movie, though. So, yeah. you know, so did everybody? So did everybody just watch like Adam Driver's performance in Marriage Story when he did that impromptu karaoke and was like, now he needs to be the next big like actor musician? Or yeah. or or they watched they watched Inside the Wind Davis. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Good call. Uh, all right, number four, Mariah Carey and Precious. I mean, uh, I would, a movie filled with emotion and pain. Mariah Carey's scenes are some of the most emotional, and, uh, um, and unlike others on this list, she's kind of unrecognizable in this role too. Number three, Tupac in Juice. Wow. Uh, Tupac started his acting career with the complicated performance of Bishop in Juice. It's his most iconic role, and it's a shame that he wasn't able to give us more performances like this. Number two, Eminem and Eight Mile. Might be the most predictable one on my list, but it deserves to be on it. Uh, Eminem as Rabbit gives us a small look into his story in a very enjoyable move or in a very enjoyable way. 
Uh, you want to see how he destroys his rivals by dropping bars at the final rap battle. And number one, if I thought about it, I would have had it on here, but I didn't think of it. Andre 3000 in Jimmy All is by my side. Uh, nominated for yes. a Spirit Award for Best Male Lead. Andre 3000 gives a dang near flawless performance as Jimi Hendrix. He brought the icon to life in this film. He's a little old now, but he would be a perfect person if they ever did a movie about RG3. <laughs> <laughs> well, hard to argue with that. But yeah. he was already in, he was already an actor at that point. He was in Four Brothers and shit, right? Yeah, but I don't think anyone ever looks at him and says actor Andre 3000. Semi pro? Yeah. Be cool. I know that's I your think favorite it counts. Military. Idlewild. Idlewild. That was the one I was thinking of. I think it still counts. Okay. Well, I didn't win. I only got uh, Lady Gaga. I, I was the one that said Precious, too. I had that on his predicted list. I changed it this morning. I think I had, Zach wins because Zach three. had, yeah. yeah, Lady Gaga, Mariah Carey, and Eminem, right? Yep. Yeah. But I was looking. You should get like a tenth of a point for the labyrinth pick, Terry. That, that was a great pick. It was it was a great poll. I was really sad it didn't if show I had up. Known, if I had known <laughs> that Adam had seen that movie, I might have put it on my list. I thought for sure he was going to have Aquafina. That, yeah, that, that was a good like pick, too. Thing. Yeah, I didn't even know she was a musician me. until it came up on a list. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I saw, too. Uh, all right. Well, Zach wins again. I got two. I got two of the five. How did Justin Timberlake not show up? I, I that that I felt know. like a very predictable Adam move. Should have been Alpha Dog. Is that that was Zach's twenty second point. Terry has seventeen, and I have oh, twenty seven and a half. Oh, I'm I'm catching up to you, Todd. I think I've, I haven't had one like the last three of these. I I'm I'm getting Adam. Nobody down. won the last one. Well, I I should have. No. I don't know. <laughs> we, we all had a... Terry didn't have a great argument, but we, we both did. It, it was an argument, and we was just like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll have Adam figure it out, and he didn't even do it. <laughs> no, no. But but this was a great list, though. I, I think this, this doesn't... It shouldn't be the last time Arlette picks the list, so... Anyways, it's time to move on to trivia. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. Zach won trivia last time, so he got to assign us some movies to watch. Todd, what did you have to watch? I had to watch In the Family, which is a Patrick Wang movie from 2011, uh, where he also is a star of the movie. He plays Joey, whose partner dies in a car accident, leaving just him and their son Chip behind. The complicated part is that they find out that Chip was actually initially put in his partner's will as going to his sister. Uh, but since they were younger, it was never really changed. So his partner's family takes Chip away, leaving Joey by himself. And his whole life kind of goes up into upheaval because uh, he's upset about losing his son. And he's trying to find a way to make things right or just find peace with his life. Uh, it's a micro-budget movie, indie style, in like the vein of like an early 90s movie, it feels like, because uh, there's something imperfect about the clarity of the camera frames, which is sort of endearing and like sort of makes it feel like it's a product of a different time. It actually really fits this movie well. It, it's sort of Bombach-ish in its story, but not necessarily in its tone or ambition. He has a really unique eye for uh, 
uh, making movies. Like I watched a bread factory, which was a two part movie that he made later on. And then that's sort of more lyrical and produced in its own way than this is. There's a lot of like silence and unspoken feelings that come across this movie. The camera likes to linger on blank faces, but you know exactly what's being portrayed and the, and the feelings that are being felt by the characters. I, the, the, the ideas in the movie definitely trump the emotions, but um, internalized feelings make it feel almost more profound, I guess. Um, explaining those type of situations to a child is probably the most uh, like difficult thing you can have to do, but uh, it, it treats it with like a lot of subtlety. Um, it, it's sort of uncompromising for a first movie. Like it feels like an expansive, like Todd Haynes or an Alan Ball movie, but like an intimate and controlled version in like a way of like a Robert Redford or something. I, I can see how you could underestimate it when you're watching it at first because it is long and drawn out, but it sticks with you and it and it definitely doesn't ever leave your memory. And it, it, it is sort of a beautiful little story. And it, I I really liked it. It's, you, you, I mean, it, it's about family and like, like what that actually means and the daily struggle of people who are with faced with that type of injustice. It's a great movie. Three and a half stars for sure. Yeah, I, I uh, watched that movie for our under thousand vote uh, power ranking last year. I, it's been one of the great um, benefits of the pandemic to watch a whole lot of movies that I didn't have time for before. This one is the one that is at the top of my list. I'm so glad I got a chance to watch it. I would now rank it my number four movie of the 2010s. I think it is extraordinary. I, I, uh, it is a movie that absolutely goes back to Roger Ebert's idea of, you know, movies are a machine that generate empathy. What a brave and like audacious work to make it three hours long to not, uh, you know, uh, make it any different than what Patrick Wang had in mind. He's extraordinary as, as the lead actor in it. The, the final like 30 minutes of that movie are just devastating. Um, I think about that movie a lot, especially in, the, in this last year, um, well, since I've seen it. Um, but I think about it uh, uh, frequently in my life. And uh, I don't know, for me, it has sort of like, it almost has like a Zen, like knowledge about the balance between work and family and personal struggle that I can only think of one other movie being as effective at, which is Kramer versus Kramer. It's an immen immensely personal movie for me. I think it's extraordinary. And uh, check it out because the guy is crazy talented. All right. All right. So that I'm glad was... You, I'm, I'm glad it was worth your time, Todd. It's always yeah. nice when you guys agree. <laughs> well, well, you know, I think, okay, like, I get that it's three hours long, but Todd had also assigned me, uh, what was the, 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 uh, what was the, the, the one Three Wooden Clogs. Three Wooden Clogs. And that was totally worth it, too. Like, I mean, you... You, you also assigned you, me a four-hour movie about art sex. Well, so. okay, that one was <laughs> an isolated incident, but... <laughs> I, you know, generally when you assign a person a three or four hour movie, it's, it better be good. And I'm glad, I'm glad it held up for you. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. I mean, and I loved a bread factory and that was, you know, four hours of overall movie. So yeah, I, I was, I was uh, anticipating watching this movie anyway. I think it's an interesting movie too. And I'm sorry, Terry, I, I want to hear what you have to say about your movie too, but like, it's a really interesting movie from 2011 before gay marriage was legal because it's very much about the racism and homophobia that this character experiences in the movie and of course how as it, you know he, he doesn't have legal rights that he would have now today and yet the movie doesn't feel dated in any way i think it's still 
touching on issues that are just kind of universal, regardless of what laws apply or don't apply. So this only ranks behind a separation for you in 2011 now, is that right? I think so, yeah, yeah. 2011, solid year, tree of life, that year too. Yeah, I know. Extremely loud and incredibly close, you know. Yep. Great yeah, forget that. Holy, wasn't Holy Motors, or is that 2012? That's 2012. Okay, M Margaret's 2011, right? Of course, yes. Yeah, 2011, best year of the 2010s. <sighs> go for it, Terry. All right. Well, uh, I get to go back uh, 40 years and talk about a movie that I know both of you love. And I loved every minute of it, too. And that is On Golden Pond, uh, which I somehow had never seen before. And now I know what I was missing. Uh, so this movie, uh, this was uh, originally back in 1981. It was nominated for Best, Act or Best Picture. Uh, it won Best Actor and Best Actress for Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn. This was like Henry Fonda's last uh, last film role. Uh, this was Catherine Hepburn's last and fourth win. Uh, nominated for screenplay, uh, supporting actress for Jane Fonda, director, cinematography, sound, editing, original score. Um, kind of crazy it didn't win Best Picture. Uh, but uh, anyways, so uh, Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn are married in this. Their daughter, uh, played by Jane Fonda, comes and leaves uh, a young boy who is the the son of her new boyfriend at their uh, summer house on Golden Pond for for a month while uh, they go and uh, get married in Brussels. Brussels is where they got married. It's in Belgium. That's where daddy's from. Um, anyways, uh, Dabney Coleman plays a plays a boyfriend. Uh, it is just so charming. This is like this is the just. It's just so damn charming. Uh, Henry Fonda his character in this is one of the most quotable characters like of all time. And he is just the, this great curmudgeon that says everything everyone wishes they could say about everything. Um, and, uh, and Catherine Hepburn is, is great as well. But I mean, this, this is Henry Fonda's show and he steals every single scene he's in whenever he opens his mouth. And, uh, and then you add in the, the, um, the actual family drama of Henry Fonda and Jane Fonda and how they, uh, how they, they this kind of played out some of their relationship with each other in this, in this moment here. It, it's just, it's just a beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, easy four stars. I, th this is a, this is a masterpiece. This might be one of my, my favorite films of the eighties. Now, after watching it, I, I could, I, I wanted to just start it over again as soon as I finished it and watch it again. Um, and, uh, and man, Henry Fonda at, at, at this age, I mean, failing health to give a performance like that, that might be one of the greatest performances of all time. Uh, and because he, he's, he was an old school guy. He was an old school actor and was able to pull out a performance like this in the eighties that didn't feel dated, didn't feel classic or old school at all. I mean, Catherine Hepburn was great, but Catherine Hepburn it's Catherine Hepburn. I mean, you, you know what you're getting from that performance and it, it, it's a very classical performance, but Henry Fonda just gives this powerhouse of a performance. And, and the, the kid, uh, Doug McKeon, who played Billy Ray too, it, he had definitely, uh, belongs up there on, a, on a lot of child performance lists too. So it's uh, like a Jared Rushton type. 
80s kid role, you know? Yeah. The kid big and whatnot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he would have been great if, if this was made, like, five years later. Yeah, no, I'm saying it's, it's that type of, like, precocious, mature role for that yes. actor. Yes. But, yeah, loved it. Loved it. This This movie is impossible not to love on, like, all fronts. Yeah, I, I knew that was going to be a, a slam dunk for you, Terry. This goes back to a debate that Todd and I had in Vegas, I think in 2018 or was it 2015? I can't remember which Vegas strip it was. But we were you know, drunkenly walking down the, the strip and Todd was telling me his love and admiration for On Golden Pond. And I thought, On Golden Pond? Really? That's what you're going to... And then when we flew back and I sobered up, I actually watched and it was like, holy shit, Todd's right. This is actually a really good movie. This isn't just Oscar bait, you know, saturine, you know, sentimentalized, you know, BS. Like, this is actually a really good movie. So ever since then, Todd made me a convert for that movie. It's a really good movie. And I cannot believe you hadn't seen it, Terry. But kind of like Anthony Hopkins in The Father, it's like it's not a dreary performance at all. He brings so much life and spontaneity to, to the role. And it's actually a really fun movie to watch, too. It doesn't feel stage bound for me. It, it just, it, it's full of life and zest and... It's a really awesome movie. I think it's aged really well. Well, it, it, exactly. It's and it's not. I mean, so many '80s movies are so corny too, and yeah. it's not corny. This one in has an edge anyway because he's a bit of a jerk. He's not really likable in the movie, and and then that the 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 kid is also sort of a jerk. Like he's not a particularly likable movie kid either. Like there's there's definitely an edge to it. Well, I, and, and he's a jerk, and and he's so much of a jerk that he looks that Henry Fonda can look at him and go, "I respect you because you are a jerk." <laughs> but no it, it's it yeah and and the the family drama too between between henry fonda and jane fonda and how it it kind of has some resolution but also kind of doesn't i mean it it, it doesn't have that that uh, every happy ending and, and you know live happily ever after type of moment it's it just kind of leaves it. it no it it's uh it's so good it's so good yeah, I watched it again recently too. Like I, it, it I only consider there's nine movies I consider perfect, and that is one of them. Like there, there, like there's nothing that it, there's no flaw in that movie. The the acting is obviously perfect. The screenplay is perfect. Of course, it didn't win because it's a play adaptation, and that never happens until the father apparently won. <laughs> but I mean, it, it has these conversations that you just don't hear in other movies. Like like the kid who looks at the uh, at um at Norman, and he just says like he's like, "Are you afraid of dying?" Like you never hear that that kind of thing ever talked about in movies, and and like the reactions are absolutely genuine. Like I I, I love that about that. It 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 pushes boundaries while still being like a, a like a wholesome thing that you you can enjoy regardless of the situation. And let, lest lest us forget, Dabney Coleman, sneaky stick man of the early eighties. I mean, this was. <laughs> Jane Fonda and then Jessica Lange and Tootsie, like really, Dabney Coleman. He's got it's like kind of like the Peter O'Toole. Wow, he's a stick man type thing. But uh, yeah, his, his stick man game was solid in the early '80s, apparently. And on that note, on that note, yes, thank you for assigning me this. Um, I went and bought it since it was a picture nominee, so I, I now have it on my shelf forever. So it was unforgivable that you hadn't seen it. I I, I agree. Now that I've seen it, I agree. Yeah. All right. Zach, what are we doing? All right. So in honor of the Oscars, uh, it, you know, we talked about Glenn Close. We talked about the musical trivia. I loved that bit. I thought it was great, even though everything was staged. Uh, we're going to do some of that, too. So we're going to play a little game of um, was it a winner? 
was it a nominee or was it not nominated? Except this time, it's not going to be for just in the song category. I, I do, I think I have, actually, I don't think I have a song, but I've picked um, 10 different categories from 10 different years, 10 movies. You have to tell me whether it was a winner, a nominee, or not nominated. So we're going to start with the category. Are we, are we doing this as we go or are we, uh, should I rewrite it down? Do you want to do that? Let's, yeah, let, let's write it down. You have, I, I liked when we did that on the departed. Uh, uh, okay, so we write trivia. it down, show it to the camera. Sure, I like it. That's a good idea. Make it more visual. And 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 yes, more visual for the audio, the audio format of, of well, podcasting that we're doing I'm here. I'm sure the four listeners will forget <laughs> us. They can always go on YouTube and check it out. Okay. We just have to say what we wrote down. <laughs> yes, which I forgot to do when I was, as I was listening to, I realized as I was listening to that Departed podcast. Okay, uh, so the first category is best score. And the movie was... Rocky from 1976. Was Rocky a winner? Was it nominated? Or was it not nominated? Of course, everybody knows the Rocky theme, right? We're going to start with you, Terry. What do you say? Nominated. Nominated. Todd, what do you say? Not nominated. The point goes to Todd. Somehow it was not nominated in 1976. Yeah, you, I, I should have I cued into your clues there that you were kind of giving it away. But. Oh, okay. Well, then I'll I'll stop doing that. <laughs> so let's uh, let's go the next category: best costume design. Um, we're gonna go uh, "Dances with Wolves" from 1990 by Elsa Zamparelli. Was this a nominee? Was it a winner? Or was it not nominated? Of course, you know, "Dances with Wolves" a Best Picture winner. How could it not? Well, I'll shut up. You're okay. still talking. <laughs> I'm going winner. Winner. What do you say, Todd? Winner. Uh, it was a nominee, but ah. it actually lost to a film that Terry recently watched, Cyrano de Bergerac. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Unbelievable. Kind of Unbelievable. I don't, I don't know this how that right. won, but okay. I mean, uh, Shakespearean clothing, I guess, yeah. Any, anyone that has to dress Gerard Depardieu probably deserves an Oscar. <laughs> um, adapted screenplay is the next category, and the film was Some Like It Hot. Written by I.A.L. Diamond and Billy Wilder. Was this a winner? Was it a nominee? Or was it not nominated? Okay. Nominated. Terry says nominated. Todd says nominated. And not both, nominated. Oh, I'm sorry. Not nominated. I didn't see that. Uh, Terry gets the point there. This was a nominee in 1959. It lost to A Room at the Top. Because of course, that's a much more memorable screenplay. Yeah, than that aged Some well. Like it Hot. Yeah. Some Like It Hot is one of the nine movies I consider perfect. By the way. Oh so. really? Okay. <laughs> I still haven't seen Good Some know. Like It Hot. I want to hear about the the other seven movies at some point. This, this sounds like a whole podcast episode in its own. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, our, the next category is Best Production Design, aka Art Direction. At the time this award was given, it was called Best Art Direction, and the film is Sunset Boulevard from 1950. Art direction by Hans Dreyer and John Meehan. That sounded like actually I was at the Oscars for a second. Uh, okay, was this a winner? Was it a nominee? Was it snubbed? Winner. Terry says winner. Not nominated. Not nominated. It was a winner. Terry gets the point. Okay. This really? How is so that a winner? What, how'd that defeat all, <laughs> all, all about Eve? Uh, yes, it did beat All About Eve in 1950. That's all art direction. 
Um, it also beat something called the Red Danube. Actually, back in the back in 1950, it was Black and White and Color Art Direction Awards. So it won yep, the they were separated. Uh, black and White Art Direction. Okay, Terry leads. Terry beating Todd in an Oscar trivia. This could get interesting. Yeah, okay, Terry writes all these down. Uh, so <laughs> I do. I do. Next category is cinematography, and the film was Lawrence of Arabia from 1962. Cinematographer was Freddie Young. Was this a winner? Was it a nominee? Or was it a snub? Todd says winner. I mean, it's got to be, right? Winner? Terry says winner. And you're never going to believe this. It was a winner. Good. Yeah. I was going to say, the fact that you were asking this question, I was like, okay. Yeah, it's called like a mind game. You know, I want to play You made me stop and think for a second. Like, if anything is going, that's like the greatest cinematography of all time. Yeah, but of course, I mean, then that's it's not surprising that the Oscars would overlook it, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right, best foreign film, aka international film, but at the time it was called foreign film. The film was from 1982, and it is Das Boot, directed by Wolfgang Peterson. Was this a movie that was nominated? Did it win, or was it snubbed in the category of best foreign film? Todd says nominated. Nominated. Terry says nominated. You're both wrong. It was actually not nominated. It was nominated for six other Oscars, but foreign film was not (laughs) one of them. So one of those, they submitted a different movie. Yes, I I think that's what it was. Even though Wolfgang Peterson was nominated for Best Director, can any of you name the (laughs) foreign film winner from that year? Which I definitely could not do. You're not going to get it. It's 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 a Spanish film called To Begin Again, which sounds like maybe a come to the stable movie. Um, okay. <laughs> the score is Terry has three, Todd has two. Our next category is sound. Um, for this one, um, I'm considering sound being both sound effects and sound editing. Uh, the film is Bonnie and Clyde from 1967, Francis Eastall. Was this a winner? Was it a nominee? Was it not nominated for either sound or sound editing? Of course, very iconic use of sound in that movie. So you would, you would think. Okay, so uh, Todd says not nominated. Terry says winner. And it, Todd gets the point. Uh, this was not nominated. The winners that year were In the Heat of the Night and The Dirty Dozen. I, I love In the Heat of the Night, but sound over Bonnie and Clyde, really? It's a, it's a bit strange. Okay, the score is tied with three more categories left. How am I not losing? That was the first one I've gotten right that he hasn't, is it? Uh, yeah, you both have three. Oh. Okay, okay. Uh, the category three of the seven. Is, I mean, I can make you lose if you want, but <laughs> I thought I was losing. Uh, the next category is original screenplay. The film is Working Girl from 1988, screenplay by Kevin Wade. Was this a winner? Was it a nominee? Or was it a snub? Nominated. Todd says nominated. I do too. Say, Terry? Nominated. nominated. That's what I would have said. Believe it or not, it was not nominated. It was a snub. Which is yep. strange to think because Wasn't it, it got nominated. Nominee? Yeah, it was it a best picture nominee. Mike Nichols was nominated. It got a lot of nominations, but not screenplay, inexplicably. Wow. Uh, well, wait, that, that can't be right. Look it up. 
Rain Man was the winner that year. It was not nominated for best original screenplay. I, I thought I, it was kind I, of I crazy figured too. Rain Man won. won. The nominees that year were Rain Man, Big Bull Durham, A Fish Called Wanda, and Running on Empty. Todd's favorite movie. So uh, yeah, it got snubbed. Pretty strong uh, year, I, I would say. Okay, next category is makeup, and the film is the film we talked about earlier, Shakespeare in Love. From 1998, the Best Picture winner, Lisa Westcott and Veronica Brebner. Was this a winner, a nominee, or snub? Oh, I don't know. I feel well, like it, it, it's nominated. nominated. Todd says winner. It's probably not a snub, right? Uh, it was nominated. Terry gets the point. It did not win. It lost. Does it, you, either of you know what, it, what beat it? In 98? Elizabeth? Elizabeth did beat it. Oh, Elizabeth, yeah. <laughs> Of course, that right? This is going to be one of the two. <laughs> okay, so this, with a score of 4-3, to three, Terry leads Todd going into our final category, which is best editing. The film, the year was 1948. The film is Hamlet. Was this a winner, a nominee, or a snub? Um, Todd says snub. Very bold pick since it was the best picture winner that year. I said the same thing. Not nominated. Terry says not nominated. The correct answer is not nominated. It was a snub from 1948, which means Terry is the victor. Congratulations, Terry. You pulled it out. You beat Todd in an Oscar trivia. That's uh, pretty impressive. Do either of you have any idea what the winner in 1948 was for best editing? It's a weird one. Is it something we've heard of? Probably not. It is on the Criterion Collection, though. That Maybe that is a... Uh, yeah, I don't know. It is The Naked City, the Jules Dassin film. Wow. Is that a deserving winner? Uh, I've never seen The Naked City. Maybe that I'll make that my next Criterion film. The other nominees were Joan of Arc, Johnny Belinda, Red River, and The Red Shoes. No Hamlet. The Red Shoes should have won. Well, yeah, but you haven't seen The Naked City. So how can you say that? Well, that, that's before everything expanded, too. I've, I've been going through and just like, just looking at some of those years, and it was 1945. In 1945, all the categories like freaked out and started nominating like 12 or 15 things. But editing has always stayed five, no matter what year it is. Kind of interesting. All right. Hey, I won. Congratulations. Working Girl <laughs> not nominated for screenplay was the big shocker. Yeah, that, that, I don't yeah, know how that, that happened. Long. Yeah, that's weird. That one's weird. If that's not nominated for screenplay, it's hard to imagine that it got any other nominations. Yeah, but it got picture and director and <laughs> several acting stuff. awards. Yep, nomination. All right, well, let's wrap this up. Quote of the daytime strawberries, not the cheese. Womack with a little sex in it. Quote of the day. And I won, so I get to go first here. And uh, I'm my quote is is a tribute quote uh, in memory of uh, the one and only Michael Collins, who uh, died this week at the age of 90. 
the command module pilot of Apollo 11, uh, went to the moon, circled around the moon a few times while Neil and Buzz walked around on it. Uh, and he was one of the great, like, if you listen to any, like, old school astronauts talk, he was, like, the one you wanted to listen to because he was just, he could tell some great stories. So uh, my quote here is, um, I had to pick one. And it, this one is, I really believe that if the political leaders of the world could see their planet from a distance of, let's say, 100,000 miles, their outlook would be fundamentally changed. The all-important border would be invisible. Uh, that noisy argument suddenly silenced. And uh, yeah, he was just, he was just R. awesome. R. I, I, I got to give one more, one more. He said, I think a future flight should include a poet, a priest, and a philosopher. We might get a better idea of what we saw. <laughs> and something I didn't realize is after he was done being an astronaut, when he retired from NASA, he went and became the first director of the National Air and Space Museum Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., which is a pretty awesome, you know, second act to your career. So, Not as cool uh, as being a representative from the state of Colorado. But he True. is way way better than Pete Conrad. Way better. Yeah. Who's still alive? No, Pete Conrad's not. Frank Borman's still alive, even though he was up chucking all the way to Apollo 8. But, all right. Uh, Zach, you're next. All right. Uh, I wanted to go with a quote from Terry's number one um, musician turned actor, Mark Wahlberg. But instead, I got sidetracked with uh, Jack Horner quotes. So uh, <laughs> here's one. If it looks like shit and sounds like shit, then it must be shit. That's the one I wanted to go with. But then it also has, the <laughs> I got to go with this one because I can't, first of all, I can't believe this quote is actually on a page because <laughs> he says, don't just ram it in there like that. This is not a hole in the wall, buddy. It's roller girl. I mean, I love, <laughs> I love that that's a Jack Horner quote that this website had to actually, you know, point out. It's such a memorable line. But by Burt Reynolds. <laughs> Amazing. I do remember the line. <laughs> I think I remember it too, actually. Uh, all right. Todd, uh, is your quote from Playmakers? That would be really cool uh, if it was. Well, no, but sort okay. of related. Uh, it is because the draft just ended yesterday. It's why they have the Playmakers trophy behind, or poster behind me. My quote comes from Mel Geiper Jr., uh, his brilliant analysis of Russell Wilson being drafted by the Seattle Seahawks. Russell Wilson will have a Seneca Wallace type career where you can bring him off the bench and he'll add a spark. And that wow. is why we uh, love the draft. <laughs> you got to love Mel Kuyper, though. Our next... I like how they just refer to him as the man who invented the draft. <laughs> <laughs> Our next, trivia should, be, TV. Our next trivia should be drafted, not drafted, or not a football player. <laughs> Terry could make that happen. I could make that happen. I could. I could. All right. Well, uh, with that, we're going to draw this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening to episode 124. Make sure, again, you subscribe, rate, review everywhere you can find our podcast. We'll come back at you next week with another episode. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together. <laughs>